all again for, for coming back. So we are finally going to talk about the actual stages of recovery. I know we've talked about, uh, you know, for the last, uh, the last session, the first three hours we spent kind of building up to uh, why we need, uh, why recovery model is important, why being person-centered is important. And now we're gonna actually talk about the model. And the model itself, it's unique in that these phases they, they seem, again, very abstract. And I know we had talked about that last time, about how, how sometimes this can be difficult to operationalize. Some of these abstract concepts, really more about a, a, almost a perspective or a philosophical viewpoint. Now, there are some ways to operationalize how these phases work. And that's what we're going to attempt to do. But again, just remember that a lot of this really is about our perspective in working with people. And, um, and so we'll, we'll try to combine those, those two things. Um, a little bit more about these stages. Uh, they, they go in order from hope, empowerment, self-responsibility, and meaningful role. However, just like a lot of different, um, a lot of uh, theories uh, regarding behavior and treatment, th there's an order, but it doesn't always go in that order. Sometimes people jump around in these concepts. Some of these concepts overlap. And a lot of the things that we'll talk about within each of these concepts, they may be skills that you have to utilize throughout the entire stage of, or the, the entire treatment of, of recovery. So it's not really a linear model. It, people can jump around. And, and honestly, oftentimes you may see that people we serve, they go through, they go through these phases. And then after meaningful role, they kind of start over again, not starting over, meaning that there was relapse, although that could certainly be part of it, but maybe they then want to work on a new or different meaningful role. So maybe that first role is, is to, you know, really wanting to maybe find a place to live that's safe. And when they finally get to that role of, okay, I am officially like an independent person uh, living in my own place, Perhaps they want to work on a new role, like I would like to, um, I'd like to be employed and I'd like to work at Walgreens. So that's the new role that we're going to work towards. So you'll see that the cycle can, can repeat over and over again. So uh, I guess one more thing that I'll, I'll say about this and um, uh, the artwork that we use, particularly in this section of the training, um, it's from a, uh, a photographer, I believe her name is Susan, uh, Susan Stein. She takes just beautiful photography. I encourage you to look at her website. Keep in mind that um, some of the things on her website are not suitable for work. Um, and I, of course, uh, I clicked on the folder that says not suitable for work while at work, um, just, just because, and I'm like, oh, wow, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so, but the reason I, I, I just like that she really, uh, she humanizes uh, people who are living on the streets. And uh, again, I, I just really appreciated her work. So I want to give her credit for that. And, and again, we use these images that she's taken. A lot of these are actually from Skid Row um, and Los Angeles. And then some of them are from New York City as well. Okay. Why don't we go into the first stage, which is hope. And I, I love this photo. First, because I, I am a dog lover. And and normally I would ask the audience, and actually I think I still could, do you feel that the man in this photo, do you think he has hope? I'll give you just a few moments to think about that. And if you do think he has 
he has hope. Um, if you could give me just kind of a quick reason why you think he has hope. I could at least talk from the dog's perspective. Not that I truly know, but it seems like the dog has hope. It seems like the dog is very much loved uh, by his uh, by his guardian there. Um, and that certainly gives, uh, gives that cute little dog hope. Well, I'm not seeing too many comments. Actually, I could say I'm not seeing any comments. Oh, ooh, there we go. Thank you so much. <laughs> I would say potentially at the very least that he does. Yeah, comfort in dog, but hanging on to little. I believe the care for the pet indicates hope. His dog looks happy, exactly. Yeah, of course, I don't know for sure if this man has hope or not, but looking at this picture and perhaps I'm, I'm projecting my own feelings onto him, uh, but it looks like he has hope. He has he has a role in life, even if it's, uh, even if he maybe is homeless and living on the streets, but he's taking care of, he's taking care of his good friend there, or his family member. And, uh, and that certainly inspires hope. And as we talk about hope, I encourage you to think about as we go through what, what gives you hope. And as I'm talking, if you could kind of type in some ideas about what gives you hope? I know it's a really general question, um, but if we could go to the next slide, and then we'll talk a little bit more about this. We pulled this model from, or we are using a model that, uh, that was created by Mark Reagans, and this is the quote that he has about hope. During times of despair, everyone needs a sense of hope, a sense that things can and will get better. Without hope, there is nothing to look forward to, and no real possibility for positive action. Hope is a great motivator, but for hope to be truly motivating, it has to be more than just an ideal. It has to take form as an actual, actual reasonable vision of what things could look like if they were to improve. It's not so much that people with mental illness will attain precisely the vision they create, but that they need to have a clear image of the possibilities before they can make difficult changes and take positive steps. So I, I really love this. I, I don't know if it's so much of a definition, but it's kind of a reason why hope is so important in the work we do. And hope is at the beginning of, these, uh, of this stage because I, kind of like Mark Reagan spelled out, it's gonna be hard to work towards a set of goals if we, if, if we don't really think that they're gonna happen if we can't envision the people we work with in a better place than where they are right now. And so one of the really interesting things about hope is that oftentimes, and I'm sure you could, um, I'm sure you could relate to, to, relate to this, but when you first start working with somebody, let's say you just receive a new FSP referral, um, and you go out to meet the individual and perhaps they're living on the streets or maybe they're living in a, um, in a supported housing or maybe they're at a, at a board and care. But regardless of where they are, oftentimes when we first, uh, when we first meet with them, they may not have a lot of hope. Um, clients who are referred to FSP have often been kind of neglected. They haven't been cared for properly by the systems that are in place to help them. And so here we are as FSP providers. So they have lots of reasons to not have hope. Um, they have experiences that have told them that there's no point in having hope because things aren't going to get better. And so we have to work with that individual to start to shift that perspective. 
And of course, as you know, it doesn't happen right away. It takes time, but there has to be hope in that dynamic. And that dynamic I'm referring to is the relationship that they have with you. So when we look at that relationship, there needs to be hope that improvement can be made. Now, the hope at the beginning of that relationship may not be with the individual you're serving. So in those cases, it really requires that we as the providers, we have to carry that burden. We have to have the burden of carrying hope for that individual until they're ready to accept a little bit of that hope. You know, you could think about it like, you know, you have a backpack filled with hope and they also have a backpack and there's nothing in it. And as time goes on, you start to take some of the hope out of your backpack and you give it to them. And so they're able to start carrying it because we can't carry that all the time. And it's, it's most appropriate for us to share that. So, um, so it's kind of a visual of how you could think about, uh, about hope in starting this phase. Now, visualization is a really critical skill to, um, to having hope. And so I would encourage and, and maybe even challenge um, providers that when you first start working with somebody, or even if you've been working with somebody, um, whether they're a really challenging person to work with, or maybe they're one of your, you know, there's somebody who just kind of, who's really easy to work with. Um, I know those are kind of few and far between, and um, it's not that simple, but still, um, it's so helpful for us as providers to visualize what that individual would look like if they achieved the, the role that they wanna be in. And you'll notice I'm using the word role as, a, as opposed to a goal. Goals are really important. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I like to use the word role because ultimately that's what we wanna, we want people to, to change in their lives as long as that's what they wanna change, of course. Um, but we'll, again, we'll talk more about roles a little bit later on, but um, we want to visualize what that individual would look like in the role that they are hoping to achieve. If you are working with somebody, uh, again, who's, who's currently living on the streets, and I'll actually, let me give you a, a, a personal example. Um, some of you may know this individual, so I'm not going to use a name or anything like that because you may have worked with her, but I know her on a personal level, and there's someone who uh, lives on the uh, sidewalk right outside of the building um, that I live in here in Hollywood, and um, uh, she's always right outside of the Walgreens, and, you know, it, I've kind of made it a point, uh, not for professional reasons, but, you know, just to kind of challenge myself, kind of like that implicit bias, like have, uh, being able to challenge some of those thoughts and beliefs that we have. And I wanted to make sure that at least for this one individual that I recognize that she is in fact a person and a human being. So it took some time and I was able to engage her in conversation and I, you know, it's not for the purposes of, you know, trying to get her into an FSP program or nothing like that. Um, but uh, just, again, just that recognition that she's a, she's a person. And so now we do talk um, when, when we see each other. And I always try to envision her working at the Walgreens, just because I know she goes there very often. And she's familiar with this area, I think she would be amazing working at a place like that. She's resourceful. She knows how to um, uh, she, she knows how to get things done. She's survived on the streets for many years. And so it, again, it's just kind of a, an activity or an exercise that I do for myself 
because I need to remind myself that there is hope because it is, it is really easy sometimes, and you all might have experienced this, to go down that path of starting to lose hope, starting to think that there is nothing I can do to help this person. And, um, and when we start to do that, and um, you know, of course not blaming anyone, because I, I, I do it too, we all do it. And, um, but when we lose hope for people, then how it's, it, it's really hard to, uh, to be able to be genuine with them and to really think that we're able to uh, support them as they try to achieve their goals. You know, something, another example of, of um, uh, how we could instill hope is think about how you're able to visualize maybe in a group supervision or even an individual supervision or just a team meeting, but maybe once once a week when you come together to have somebody present on one of the people that they're working with and just lead or facilitate a discussion with your team about visualizing this individual in the world that they want. What would they look like? Would their clothes be different? Would their hair be different? Um, I know this sounds silly, but would they maybe they would smell nicer if they've been living on the streets and don't get to shower sometimes. Uh, people tend to get a little stinky. So what would it be like if this person had awesome hygiene and, you know, was finally able to do his or her hair in the style that they wanted and that they felt good in instead of the default, I can't afford to get a haircut or I don't have the means to do, you know, to, to do proper hygiene. So some of those kind of surfacey, a little bit seemingly shallow, but they're indicators that an individual is doing well. So Again, I encourage you to maybe do some of that process work in a group or team meeting and really try to facilitate hope, not just for you, but for, but for everybody. And you know, we've done this in one of our live trainings where I asked somebody to describe uh, somebody that they're working with. And um, like, I'm like, tell me about some of the challenges they are, but then just tell me about that person. What do they, what do they look like? And where do they wanna be in life? And I believe the person said that, uh, the, the client that they are working with wanted to be a nurse, perhaps. So in the room, we all just tried to visualize this person. We already had a description of what they looked like. Um, so let's visualize this person at work. Let's think about them working at UCLA, UCLA Health. Maybe they're wearing scrubs and they have a stethoscope around their neck and they have their badge that says registered nurse. Um, think about how the compassion they have for other people and, and how they take care of others and greet others as they start their day. And it was a really great experiment in that moment because the person that we, uh, that kind of uh, shared this individual story with us um, she was able to say, oh my God, that is so cool. She's like, I know nothing really changed here, but I'm going to share the story to that client that we just talked about to let her know that there were 60 people in this room all visualizing um, this individual in the role that they are hoping to achieve. And um, you know, I don't know how that went for her, but it was really, I, I think we all kind of just felt really hopeful for this person. So again, I know this is all so abstract and we're trying to put some ways to operationalize it. Um, and those are some of the ways. And I'll do, um, I, I think I use this example around this part. And if I don't, no harm done. But something else that I've seen ACT teams do, and ACT is assertive community treatment. And as I was saying, when I worked in New York, I had supervised uh, those teams. And uh, 
some of the teams, like, well, actually, let me take a step back. With ACT, part of the model, the fidelity to that model is you have to have these giant whiteboards in your team room because those whiteboards are used to track medication. They're used to track appointments. Um, the weekly calendar is put up on there so everyone knows who they're going to see that day. Um, but then one of the teams or maybe a couple of the teams, they actually started to reserve one of those whiteboards because they, they had a few. <laughs> they reserved one of them just to list out the goals that every person on that team is working towards. So each ACT team has 68 clients or service recipients or members. And so they listed out the initials of every client, all 68, and next to those individuals, they said, this person is just about to start school and they are working on you know, setting up a routine so they'll succeed. Or this person is trying to find housing or this person is, um, you know, trying to lower their blood pressure, you know, whatever it is, whatever it was. But every day, every team member got to see, uh, got to see a sign of hope as opposed to just looking at, and, and those things are important, of course, tracking medications and injections and all of those things. I don't want to minimize that. Um, but being able to balance that out with this concept that, uh, that yeah, there are goals too that we're working towards. And we don't want to forget that. So I always thought that was a really great way to instill hope within the team. So most importantly, the relationship really comes first. I, I imagine that, uh, that a lot of you realize this. And I think this is one of those times where it can be really difficult trying to balance the expectations of our funders and of our organizations. All good expectations, of course, they want us to do work and they want things to be sustainable. But developing a solid relationship with the person you're working with is, is paramount for any additional work to be done. And if you're able to show genuine hope and compassion, sometimes it makes that relationship uh, development stage a little bit easier. Um, but think about, you know, think about how, um, well, I, I won't use that example actually, but the, the energy that we need to put into making a relationship is, uh, again, it, it's crucial. And sometimes the challenge is that it doesn't always get recognized. Um, you know, our funders are looking at, you know, did somebody succeed in getting housing or did somebody um, achieve sobriety from methamphetamine? Like, again, all really good indicators, but none of those things could happen if there's not a trusting relationship with you as the provider. And there's not those indicators necessarily that we get to report back on. We don't get to say, you know, 60 relationships were developed this month with this uh, FSP team. Um, you know, I wish there was something more, a, a way to capture that a little bit better. And sometimes it can be really frustrating because you are working really hard. You know, you may have 45 days to develop uh, that relationship in, in terms of DMH and, and the engagement phase. Um, but yeah, sitting with somebody and just listening uh, or maybe even talking about sports or talking about the weather with somebody while you're working with them on the street, that stuff doesn't always get recognized, but it's so, so crucial in the work that you're doing because that's how we build relationships as opposed to going in with, okay, I have this checklist of assessments that we need to complete and we need to get you in housing ASAP and I need to get you off drugs. Like, okay, so those things are, are important, 
but again, not possible without a relationship. So sorry if I went on a little tangent there, but it is so crucial. And I really love this concept too. And I, I think Elizabeth actually, uh, I learned this from Elizabeth and, and talking about intentional curiosity. I love this concept to think about what it's like to be curious about somebody, genuinely curious, not curious in that I want to know what happened to you so I can fill out on fill out an assessment, but curious in that I want to I want to be able to understand what your experiences have been in your life. I want to know, want to learn from you. Uh, are the, the people we serve have a lot to teach us. But if we're not intentionally curious about it, um, we're going to miss out on a ton of knowledge. And we're also going to miss out on a really great relationship. It's a professional relationship, but still, um, if we don't reach out and do that, there's a lot that we're going to miss. Um, we, I think we could go to the next slide. I'm just going to look. Okay, before we go to the next slide, I wanted to mention, so we kind of talked about a few, a few ways to develop hope. Um, and to visualize hope. And we talked about how important the relationship is. I wanted to mention one other thing and I'm gonna pull it up on my computer. I'm not gonna share my screen because it's really not that exciting. Um, but you have a copy in the PDF that was either sent to you or you've downloaded off of our website. Um, near the back of that, it's a pretty large document, I apologize. Um, but in the back is something called the Hearth Hope Index. And it's a little bit of an older measurement tool. It was in, um, Kay Hearth developed this in 1988. And the reason I mention this, it's not that I encourage you to do another assessment. I have a feeling that you all have plenty of assessments to do as it is. We don't need to add another one. Um, but this hope scale, I like it only because, well, I, I like it for this reason in this context, because they're really great questions in there that can help lead a discussion with the people you serve about hope. And so like some of them, I'm looking at it now and it, you know, one of the things is I sense the presence of loved ones. And, you know, then the options are, does that apply to you? It's never sell them sometimes often. But just talking about somebody with the, are you able to sense the presence of loved ones? What does that mean? Or I have deep inner strength. It's a great topic to talk about if it's appropriate, of course, and that's up for you all to see, you know, to determine which of these questions may be appropriate with the people you work with. But I'd encourage you to just look through that and, uh, and see if anything kind of uh, sparks ideas for you. And of course, you can use this assessment if you really want to, if you want to assess the level of hope somebody has, that's of course a great idea. So before we go to a video that we're going to watch, um, I just want to go check back to the chat box. And uh, I appreciate you all sharing what gives you hope. And so I'm going to read some of these things back. And so Karen talks about friends, family, pets, art, music, and nature. Um, all of the above. Yeah, <laughs> Teresa responded. I totally agree. Uh, seeing others succeed. Uh, Yvonne, thank you. And great food and education from Karen. Yeah, those are great additions. Um, inspiration from others or being inspired by others. Um, compassion and action. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's a great uh, addition to what, what brings hope. Um, uh, Yvonne also added small incremental achievable steps. Um, yeah, really great, uh, really great idea or great things that instill hope. And 
hopefully all, everyone watching today is also thinking about hope and what instills hope in you because we're at a time right now where it can be kind of easy to um, to have our levels of hope slip a little bit lower than they normally would. So be cognizant of that and, and try to think about what gives you hope um, and how you could kind of activate that um, then. So with that, we are gonna go to a movie. The day I left home for the first time to go to university was a bright day, brimming with hope and optimism. I'd done well at school, expectations for me were high, and I gleefully entered the student life of lectures, parties, and traffic home theft. Now, appearances, of course, can be deceptive, and to an extent, this feisty, energetic persona of lecture-going and traffic home stealing was a veneer, albeit a very well-crafted and convincing one. Underneath, I was actually deeply unhappy, insecure, and fundamentally frightened. Frightened of other people, of the future, of failure, and of the emptiness that I felt was within me. But I was skilled at hiding it, and from the outside appeared to be someone with everything to hope for and aspire to. This fantasy of invulnerability was so complete that I even deceived myself. And as the first semester ended and the second begun, there was no way that anyone could have predicted what was just about to happen. I was leaving a seminar when it started, humming to myself, fumbling with my bag, just as I'd done a hundred times before, when suddenly I heard a voice calmly observe, she is leaving the room. I looked around and there was no one there, but the clarity and decisiveness of the comment was unmistakable. Shaken, I left my books on the stairs and hurried home, and there it was again, she is opening the door. This was the beginning, the voice had arrived. And the voice persisted, days and then weeks of it, on and on, narrating everything I did in the third person. She is going to the library, she is going to a lecture. It was neutral, impassive, and even, after a while, strangely companionate and reassuring. Although I did notice that its calm exterior sometimes slipped in that it occasionally mirrored my own unexpressed emotion. So, for example, if I was angry and had to hide it, which I often did, being very adept at concealing how I really felt, then the voice would sound frustrated. Otherwise, it was neither sinister nor disturbing, although even at that point, it was clear that it had something to communicate to me about my emotions, particularly emotions which were remote and inaccessible. Now, it was then that I made a fatal mistake in that I told a friend about the voice, and she was horrified. A subtle conditioning process had begun. The implication that normal people don't hear voices and the fact that I did meant that something was very seriously wrong. Such fear and mistrust was infectious. Suddenly, the voice didn't seem quite so benign anymore. And when she insisted that I seek medical attention, I duly complied, and which proved to be mistake number two. I spent some time telling the college GP about what I perceived to be the real problem. Anxiety, low self-worth, fears about the future and was met with bored indifference, until I mentioned the voice, upon which he dropped his pen, swung round, and began to question me with a show of real interest. And to be fair, I was desperate for interest and help, and I began to tell him about my strange commentator. And I always wish, at this point, the voice had said, she is digging her own grave. I was referred to a psychiatrist, who likewise took a grim view of the voice's presence, subsequently interpreting everything I said through a lens of latent insanity. 
For example, I was part of a student TV station that broadcast news bulletins around the campus, and during an appointment, which was running very late, I said, I'm sorry, doctor, I've got to go. I'm reading the news at six. Now, it's down in my medical records that Eleanor has delusions that she's a television news broadcaster. <laughs> it was at this point that events began to rapidly overtake me. A hospital admission followed, the first of many. A diagnosis of schizophrenia came next. And then, worst of all, a toxic, tormenting sense of hopelessness, humiliation and despair about myself and my prospects. But having been encouraged to see the voice, not as an experience, but as a symptom, my fear and resistance towards it intensified. Now, essentially, this represented taking an aggressive stance towards my own mind, a kind of psychic civil war. And in turn, this caused the number of voices to increase and grow progressively hostile and menacing. Helplessly and hopelessly, I began to retreat into this nightmarish inner world in which the voices were destined to become both my persecutors and my only perceived companions. They told me, for example, that if I proved myself worthy of their help, then they could change my life back to how it had been. And a series of increasingly bizarre tasks were set, a kind of labor of Hercules. Started off quite small, for example, pull out three strands of hair, but gradually grew more extreme, culminating in commands to harm myself and a particularly dramatic instruction. You see that tutor over there? You see that glass of water? We have to go over and pour it over him in front of the other students, which I actually did, and which, needless to say, did not endear me to the faculty. In effect, a vicious cycle of fear, avoidance, mistrust and misunderstanding had been established. This was a battle in which I felt powerless and incapable of establishing any kind of peace or reconciliation. Two years later, and the deterioration was dramatic. By now, I had the whole frenzied repertoire. Terrifying voices, grotesque visions, bizarre, intractable delusions. My mental health status had been a catalyst for discrimination, verbal abuse, and physical and sexual assault. And I've been told by my psychiatrist, Eleanor, you'd be better off with cancer, because cancer is easier to cure than schizophrenia. I've been diagnosed, drugged, and discarded, and was by now so tormented by the voices that I attempted to drill a hole in my head in order to get them out. Now, looking back on the wreckage and despair of those years, it seems to me now as if someone died in that place, and yet someone else was saved. A broken and haunted person began that journey, but the person who emerged was a survivor and would ultimately grow into the person I was destined to be. Many people have harmed me in my life, and I remember them all, but the memories grow pale and faint in comparison with the people who've helped me. The fellow survivors, the fellow voice hearers, the comrades and collaborators, the mother who never gave up on me, who knew that one day I would come back to her and was willing to wait for me for as long as it took. The doctor, who only worked with me for a brief time, but who reinforced his belief that recovery was not only possible, but inevitable. And during a devastating period of relapse, told my terrified family, don't give up hope. I believe that Eleanor can get through this. Sometimes you know it snows as late as May, but summer always comes eventually. Fourteen minutes is not enough time to fully credit those good and generous people who fought with me and for me and who waited to welcome me back from that agonized, lonely place. But together, they forged a blend of courage, creativity, integrity and an unshakable belief that my shattered self could become healed and whole. 
I used to say that these people saved me, but what I now know is they did something even more important in that they empowered me to save myself. And crucially, they helped me to understand something which I'd always suspected, that my voices were a meaningful response to traumatic life events, particularly childhood events, and as such were not my enemies, but a source of insight into solvable emotional problems. Now, at first, this was very difficult to believe, not least because the voices appeared so hostile and menacing. So in this respect, a vital first step was learning to separate out a metaphorical meaning from what I'd previously interpreted to be a literal truth. So, for example, voices which threatened to attack my home, I learned to interpret as my own sense of fear and insecurity in the world rather than an actual objective danger. Now, at first, I would have believed them. I remember, for example, sitting up one night on guard outside my parents' room to protect them from what I thought was a genuine threat from the voices. Because I'd had such a bad problem with self-injury that most of the cutlery in the house had been hidden. So I ended up arming myself with a plastic fork, like picnic wear, and sort of sat outside the room clutching it, waiting to spring into action should anything happen. It was like, don't mess with me. Got a plastic fork, don't you know? Um, that was strategic. But a later response, and much more useful, would be to try and deconstruct the message behind the words. So when the voices warned me not to leave the house, then I would thank them for drawing my attention to how unsafe I felt, because if I was aware of it, then I could do something positive about it. But go on to reassure both them and myself that we were safe and didn't need to feel frightened anymore. I would set boundaries for the voices and try to interact with them in a way that was assertive yet respectful, establishing a slow process of communication and collaboration in which we could learn to work together and support one another. Throughout all of this, what I would ultimately realize was that each voice was closely related to aspects of myself and that each of them carried overwhelming emotions that I'd never had an opportunity to process or resolve. Memories of sexual trauma and abuse, of anger, shame, guilt, low self-worth, the voices took the place of this pain and gave words to it. And possibly one of the greatest revelations was when I realized that the most hostile and aggressive voices actually represented the parts of me that had been hurt the most profoundly. And as such, it was these voices that needed to be shown the greatest compassion and care. It was armed with this knowledge that ultimately I would gather together my shattered self, each fragment represented by a different voice, gradually withdraw from all my medication and return to psychiatry. Only this time, from the other side. Ten years after The Voice first came, I finally graduated, this time with the highest degree in psychology the university had ever given, and one year later, the highest master's. Which I always say isn't bad for a mad woman. In fact, one of the voices actually dictated the answers during the exam, which technically possibly counts as cheating. And, <laughs> and to be honest, sometimes I quite enjoyed their attention as well. As Oscar Wilde has said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. It also makes you very good at eavesdropping because you can listen to two conversations simultaneously, so it's not all bad. I worked in mental health services, I spoke at conferences, I published book chapters and academic articles, and I argued, and continue to do so, the relevance of the following concept, that an important question in psychiatry shouldn't be what's wrong with you, but rather what's happened to you. And all the while, I listened to my voices, with whom I'd finally learned to live with peace and respect, and which in turn reflected a growing sense of compassion, acceptance and respect towards myself. And I remember the most moving and extraordinary moment when supporting another young woman who was terrorized by her voices and becoming fully aware for the very first time that I no longer felt that way myself, but was finally able to help someone else who was. 
I'm now very proud to be a part of Intervoice, the organizational body of the International Hearing Voices Movement, an initiative inspired by the work of Professor Marius Rohm and Dr. Sondra Escher, which locates voice hearing as a survival strategy, a sane reaction to insane circumstances, not as an aberrant symptom of schizophrenia to be endured, but a complex, significant, and meaningful experience to be explored. Together, we envisage and enact a society that understands and respects voice hearing, supports the needs of individuals who hear voices, and which values them as full citizens. This type of society is not only possible, it's already on its way. To paraphrase Chavez, once social change begins, it cannot be reversed. You cannot humiliate the person who feels pride. You cannot oppress the people who are not afraid anymore. For me, the achievements of the Hearing Voices movement are a reminder that empathy, fellowship, justice and respect are more than words. They are convictions and beliefs, and that beliefs can change the world. In the last 20 years, the Hearing Voices movement has established Hearing Voices networks in 26 countries across five continents, working together to promote dignity, solidarity and empowerment for individuals in mental distress, to create a new language and practice of hope which, at its very centre, lies an unshakable belief in the power of the individual. As Peter Levine has said, the human animal is a unique being, endowed with an instinctual capacity to heal and the intellectual spirit to harness this innate capacity. In this respect, for members of society, there is no greater honour or privilege than facilitating that process of healing for someone. To bear witness, to reach out a hand, to share the burden of someone suffering and to hold the hope for their recovery. And likewise, for survivors of distress and adversity that we remember, we don't have to live our lives forever defined by the damaging things that have happened to us. We are unique, we are irreplaceable. What lies within us can never be truly colonized, contorted or taken away. The light never goes out. As a very wonderful doctor once said to me, don't tell me what other people have told you about yourself. Tell me about you. Thank you. And I haven't watched this in a while. You know, I think I watched this when we first started. And seeing it again, like it really, she touches on all of the things that we talked about on Wednesday. Like she clearly demonstrates how like stigma and trauma and labeling um, have impacted and served as a barrier to her recovery process. And then clearly dem she demonstrates how initially her, her, her support systems didn't have hope for her. Um, and she had, she was somehow at, through all of that, like she was able to harness hope and actually have a vision for the future and achieve it. And I, I think the, the one thing you and I have talked about, Elizabeth, in, in showing this video is that, yes, she, um, you know, it, it seems like her family probably had resources, you know, where she was able to go to school and, you know, she, she, uh, she has white privilege and that would that also contributes to her success so we want to acknowledge those things that yes yeah, she's she mm -hmm. still doesn't she she's not like a 
like some of the uh, people we serve through FSP. However, she still had so many challenges in her life and she was able to turn those around. So yeah, so just kind of acknowledging that privilege was part of it, but regardless, um, great demonstration of hope. So thank you, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's such a, her story is wonderful. She's a, a talented speaker. She's so eloquent and explains these things so well, and we could spend, you know, the rest of the day, Eleanor Longden is her name. Um, you could spend the rest of the day just sort of picking this apart and doing discussion around it. I see a, a few comments. Um, I, uh, you say uh, you like the part, and I, I actually made a note too about the what's wrong with you um, and replacing that with what's happened to you. And that really makes me think of the heart of person-centered care, that it, it's about the person's experience, not the problems that define um, why they're seeing you. That's that sort of illness-centered versus person-centered perspective we started with yesterday. Um, and yeah, for anyone who's interested, the Hearing Voices Network, I actually don't know how active it is in LA. Again, I, it was, I worked with some people who facilitated those groups in New York City. Really powerful stuff, uh, great resource. I, I'd encourage some poking around about it. I probably should do that myself too to see what's going on with the network in LA. Um, really amazing. I mean, you, you'll see some of these, those principles that she talks about uh, reflected in CBT for psychosis, um, really engaging with and not sort of fragmenting the self and but more um, making peace with uh, these experiences and how how much that that sort of that that is effective for people, how much that really busts through stigma of people who are who experience things that others do not. Um, I think it's really, really powerful. Um, another another thing that comes up for me, I think, you know, stigma is in there and Theo, you talked about privilege, but she looks different than most people with schizophrenia that we would know of, right? Like it's a good example to check some implicit bias about what, what who, who has mental illness, who doesn't. Um, you know, I, I, I worked for an agency in New York City that they made a goal of hiring over 50%, so 51% people with lived experience who may have formally identified as peers. And I really saw that in action and they were at all levels of this large agency of this four or 500 person agency up into uh, executive leadership. And it really was a, a wonderful way of reflecting on just all of the strengths that people have, all of the capacity for recovery that people have and how we, you know, when David was talking about the visualization of people taking on roles um, and finding meaning and purpose in their lives, um, in a way that looks really conventional, that that is absolutely possible. And she's a great example of that too. Um, I really appreciated the, the line of, they empowered me to save myself. And we heard a lot about hope and how critical it was for Eleanor to have people hold out hope for her to sort of carry her when she had lost that hope and how hopeless she did feel. And then she speaks about how how that sort of was bridged from these people held hope for me when I didn't have it. I was able to explore, you know, uh, how I could relate to the, the the symptoms I was experiencing, the voices I was hearing differently. And then she was taught skills, and she wasn't saved. She was people didn't um, fix her. She did it herself, but they supported her. They empowered her. So I'm curious, I'm gonna just check back at the comments. 
Um, Teresa, you say, that's what I thought. She seems so sophisticated, unbelievable. We never know who has what in this world. Amazing story. Yeah, for sure. Um, we all, there's nothing wrong with the fact that we have assumptions or impressions. We are informed by, you know, what we, what we learn and what we are typically seeing, but mental illness is often silent and, uh, it can manifest with anyone of any walk of life. Um, yeah, there is no look max. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the name of the organization. Okay. Inner voice and hearing voices network. Those are things that you could, uh, Google if you want to make some notes. Um, Right, so let's switch to talking about empowerment. I'm gonna talk about the next two stages of recovery. Um, we've got hope that David just spoke about, and now I'm gonna talk about empowerment and then self-responsibility. And really, I kind of feel like empowerment is just sort of a, a it kind of fits with self-responsibility. Um, it sort of feeds into it in a certain way. I'm interested to hear what comes to mind for you, what phrases, what concepts, what, uh, what, what words, uh, come to mind when you think of trying to define empowerment. And feel free to throw those into the chat. Uh, Paul, you're mentioning Ellen Sachs' TED Talk as well. Yep, she's another great uh, example of someone with an incredible recovery story and uh, an advocate for the field. Yep. Let's see, believing in self, okay? Giving someone choice. So supporting their autonomy, supporting their choice. Yeah. What do we think about, what does it mean um, if you are empowering someone? What are you doing as a, as a provider? Supporting and encouraging. Self-respect comes to mind for you, Michelle. Giving them agency, right? Empowerment is a funny concept because you know, I, I think about it and I t extract the word power from it. And I'm like, who really has power in the, when we're empowering someone? Is it something we, we are really giving someone? Is it something we are encouraging and supporting? Is it, I mean, we do have power, right? We have an amazing amount of power. We have all this exclusive information about the individuals we serve. They don't have that information about us. Um, in some cases, we have the power to have them, um, uh, let's say held if they're in a psychiatric emergency, um, there's a significant amount of power that we have. Um, and it's, that's a little bit of a different piece though. It is still a, it still informs the dynamic that we have with the clients that we serve. So there's this power dynamics or this imbalance that exists. And at the same time, there's this uh, sort of in tandem, there's the process that we engage in around trying to support the agency, um, support the autonomy, the self-determination and self-efficacy of the individuals we serve. All right, going back to the comments, pointing out strengths, that's a way that we empower individuals. Strong-willed individuals, a new sense of inner strength, helping someone know they have control and power. So it can be a non, sort of a non- we're not handing power to someone, but we can help people to understand where they have that within themselves. Yes. Um, giving people the tools to do things for themselves. It could be by modeling, teaching, etc. I like to think of the ideal power sort of dynamic in the helping relationship is walking alongside someone. And, you know, they are the gatekeeper truly of themselves. They are the ones who 
who uh, make decisions for themselves and we want to support that, but we can guide, we can offer information, um, we can reinforce instances where they have power and control and agency. We can give examples, we can set up scenarios for them to have choice and practice that in the, the helping relationship, partnership, wonderful, yeah. Right, so for empowerment, we've got the process of providing and highlight on process. Um, this is not something that's just like, you are empowered. We, we did some empowerment work and now you're, go, go do it. Go take care of yourself. Um, it is a process of providing the encouragement, support and resources to help the individual get the role they want to be in while reinforcing self-determination and self-efficacy and also the transfer of power in a helping relationship. So kind of two different little pieces there occurring at the same time. And we're gonna try and talk through both uh, right here. So this slide reflects the, the power dynamics that may or may not exist in uh, relationships with clients. So this is up for interpretation and discussion. Uh, this diagram has, uh, at the beginning of treatment, a provider having more power. Um, and we've, we're framing it this way because there's the responsibility and power of carrying hope for someone of kind of like, you know, acting for them in a sense, what David was talking about, what the work that we can do, the fact that we may need to carry that hope until someone is able to carry it themselves. That is there. And there's also the fact that we, we may be really sort of directing the beginning of training. We're going to be saying, we've got to do some assessments. We've got to set some goals. Um, in a sense, we want to be eliciting uh everything we can from an individual to have them choose and self-determine, but there's a lot of framing that we do that involves uh, a high-powered role. Um, and in this diagram, we've got also the end of treatment having the client have more power. And you could replace power with just responsibility, um, more enhanced choice to the point where they're not just uh, sort of commit with ideas of what they want, but they're, they're actualizing that and they're living through the benefits and consequences of their choices and behaviors. Um, and in the middle here, we've got this autonomy and choice piece, right? So the greater you turn up the dial on autonomy and choice, the more that's reinforced. Eventually, the client is in a really empowered state and is has a lot of responsibility too. Now, the beginning of treatment, end of treatment thing is that's that's just one possible way of interpreting this. It's you could also look at this and just say that this is a, a seesaw that does this back and forth periodically. As we've been talking about this, these stages of recovery are not linear. People don't just go through hope and then they become empowered, uh, they work together, and then they really get into self-responsibility. And then maybe they find a meaningful role and they're done. It means that they might be in sort of the, okay, all right, I'm, I'm feeling like I've got agency, I've got resources, I've got strengths, I'm clear on them, I've got goals. I'm going to engage in sort of the self-responsibility stage that we're going to talk about in a second. That doesn't mean they can't go into a crisis and immediately need some of that hope support at, that happens at the beginning, that could happen at any moment. And I wanna bet right now that a lot of the work that needs to, a lot of the conversation that can be occurring with folks is around like, how do you, how do we co-produce hope? How do we hold that together? How do I, how do I support someone into uh, surfing these changes that are occurring rapidly and all of this sort of life upset of the current circumstances? Okay. Let's talk about just briefly a skill that's really uh, critical in supporting uh, individuals' empowerment. Again, this I kind I kind of hate saying empowering people because that makes me feel like I'm doing a special thing. It's more of supporting and encouraging an in, 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 individual's own sense of empowerment. 
Um, motivational interviewing, I'm pretty sure you all are familiar with this and we are not going to get into it deeply. Um, if you are not familiar with it, we highly encourage you attend some trainings on it. We've got, I believe some coming up if I'm not mistaken ourselves. Yeah. Um, but just to throw it up here, uh, Motivational interviewing is this sort of conversational skill that's really aimed at eliciting um, what people want, what they what they want in their lives. Uh, if there's something they want to change, it's eliciting that motivation for making a change. And we focus it around sort of health behavior changes in our realm, right? Uh, but you can really apply it to anything. Uh, right here, we've got PACE, which is the acronym for the spirit of motivational interviewing. It includes partnership. I just saw that word from you, Megan. Acceptance, compassion, and evocation. And some of the skills that are used, the verbal skills, are open-ended questions, affirmations, reflective listening, and summaries. Um, these are, I mean, they're kind of your bread and butter for uh, working with people in a power-sharing way where you are not motivational interviewing is considered a little bit directive because it's it's oriented towards eliciting someone's motivation and interest in change and and helping them discern uh, what's working for them and what's not working for them in their lives but it's also highly autonomy supporting it's it's really reinforcing of individuals choice all right paul you you have a comment i imagine how clients that are conserved may need even more hope in the start of the helping process yeah, really important. In every, every circumstance, for those that have even greater restrictions on their autonomy and choice, I mean, that, that enhances the need for us to, to work with them around how can they conjure up hope in that, in that situation. And maybe some people just get it. They're in a restricted context and they maintain that hope. But I, I, I know that I, I sure would feel a bit hopeless if I had some of my, my rights taken away. All right, another slide that is kind of funny to be placed here, but I like to think about it because it's like a good sort of, it ties together the, the anti-stigma language that we're sort of, we're pitching, right? We're trying to convince you that this more person-centered language, this non-labeling language is really critical in uh, fighting stigma and fighting sort of the, uh, the harms to self-esteem, the shame that can come from internalized stigma. And one of the ways that we have to work with folks is around uh, if there's a treatment plan, maybe they're taking medications or attending sessions for therapy or other activities. We talk about compliance and adherence a lot. And this kind of goes back to that topic of, well, sometimes we just have to use words that kind of sound judgy and uh, like we, we hold a lot of power and reflect the fact that we do hold power um, in the relationships we have with folks. So compliance and adherence, this comes up uh, all the time. I think we, I've, you know, used the term compliance and adherence or non-adherence or non-compliance a lot. I, even though I consider myself a really sort of person-centered uh, provider, it's still just, you know, it, it gets used sometimes. If someone's not taking their meds, maybe they're not being compliant. They're not being compliant with the, the, what they were supposed to be doing, the treatment plan. But this kind of needs to be unpacked sometimes, right? This is a chart that kind of breaks down and humanizes into how many behaviors it takes in a year for a person to actually be compliant and adherent. And it really makes, it kind of elucidates what it's like to be on the side of someone who is being told they have schizophrenia and they need to engage in treatment and the way that it's happening and what that sort of, how high the bar is sometimes for people for that sort of 
perfection, which is if you're not doing all of it, you're non-adherent or non-compliant. So here we've got a few medications. Someone's got to get refills. They've got to set up their pillbox. They've got to take the medications. They've got to monitor their diet and exercise because we know that many of these medications can cause uh, issues with metabolism and obesity. Uh, we've got nurse visits, lab work, psychiatric care visits, therapy, peer specialist meetings. I have no idea what C's is, but that's some sort of weekly activity and a healthy lifestyle group. This is an ideal sort of regimen, right? Like this is a lot, this is very, uh, this is a lot of support, a lot of treatment. But what does that take? That's 2,758 activities or behaviors that a person has to engage in. And we, I know I've had instances of hearing other providers and myself included be like, not, not going to those sessions. I mean, that's what you've got to do or not taking your medication regularly. Well, you know, like let's talk about what happens when you don't take that regularly. And I think there's, there's a need to also acknowledge how hard it is to keep up with all of this stuff, especially if you're someone who's experiencing mental distress, um, emotional distress. This is, this is a lot. Um, I couldn't keep up with this. I actually have experienced, I've had a comment to me, I take a bunch of supplements for migraine treatment and I've had a doctor tell me, cause I was kind of not taking them every day, forgetting to refill the pillbox and keep the schedule or order them from Amazon, whatever. And I was told, like, if you're not going to comply with this regimen, you're not ever going to see if it's working. And I was like, I know that's true, but the word comply just feels like crap. Like, I feel like you don't get it all that this is a painful condition. It's challenging. These are expensive supplements, la, la, la. I didn't feel treated in a very person-centered manner in that way. So this is just, again, why is this with empowerment? It's because we throw around these words of non-compliant, non-adherent, uh, when we just see a person is not 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 complying with a plan. But for the for the person who, who that plan is for, it's much deeper. Um, and so this is an area where we can talk with people, of course, maybe use different language, trying to avoid these terms, um, but also talk with them about like, well, what's it like to have to take all these medications? It's so much to keep up with. Um, and with that, that helps an individual, of course, express what they've got going on, uh, what the, how their treatment is going, but also maybe have just a, a greater sense of, yeah, I do a lot. And that's empowering. It's empowering to take care of yourself and really reflecting with someone like, wow, you do 2,700 behaviors each year, ideally, to take care of yourself. That's incredible. Hopefully that's empowering. All right. So let's talk about self-responsibility next. And I think, okay, so we've got a comment here. Thank you, David. Pat Deegan, right. She's up there with Ellen Sachs and Eleanor Longden. These are all these like wonderful sort of uh, anti-psychiatry movement or uh, sort of psychiatric rights uh, advocates. Uh, Pat Deegan has a website. Again, I'm just forgetting everything about her. Um, she's a wonderful website full of tools and resources, which this was pulled from, so it'll be in our references, um, that is geared towards providers, people with lived experience, peers, whomever, to help them learn uh, greater skills, insights around recovery-oriented care. So I encourage you to check out her website. I think it's Common Ground or something like that. David, if you want to toss it up there, I'll appreciate that. All right. So... Talking about self-responsibility, self-responsibility is this, again, as we move from hope to empowerment, self-responsibility adds on a layer of, okay, I am, I am empowered. 
And I'm also going to start engaging in my own treatment and start taking on some sort of accountability or awareness that I am affecting change in my own life. Um, yes, Common Ground Program, that link. Check it out. Lots of good stuff there. So again, key in sort of reinforcing self-responsibility, this is like the active the partnership, like the, the partnership in action uh, in the treatment relationship. We are recognizing that everyone is the expert in their own life without a doubt. Um, now I have had, or we have, David and I have had some people pipe up in these trainings and say, well, what about, what about the people who are using drugs? You know, they're not doing good things to themselves. Like if they've got, they're using a lot of meth or heroin, can they really be considered an expert in their own life? Or what about people who are experiencing delusions and aren't in, you know, terribly reality-based all the time? Are they the experts of their own life? I think I'm the expert. I, I know what's best for them. And that's, there's some truth to not everyone knows everything about uh, psychology or psychiatry or uh, wellness, but everyone is still the expert of their own experience, right? They know what they're experiencing more deeply than any outsider ever possibly can, no matter what our knowledge base is. And that's what we really want to highlight here. It does an expert in your own life or an expert of your own experience does not mean uh, you're getting everything right all the time. It means you, you understand, you have a comprehensive awareness of, of yourself. You know, your history, um, you know, you know, your motivations, you know, your preferences. And that's something that we as providers have to work on eliciting for people. Um, we have the, the bullet up here of what's more important, truth or engagement. And this is another sort of facet of respecting autonomy in an active way. Um, a sort of, I, I like to think of the, the instance of drug testing in certain programs. I'm not sure if anyone has that going on in their programs or has ever worked in scenarios like that um, or has ever been in a situation where they, they're really trying to find out if a person is, is doing a certain thing, uh, using drugs or something like that. And I would just pose, is it really helpful to sort of empowering someone and then extending that into uh, supporting their own self-responsibility in their recovery process to know everything? Like, do we really need to? What is that about when we when we want to do that? And we'll get into in just a few minutes what that is about. What, why, you know, why we in some instances sort of veer towards wanting to have greater knowledge or control or over protecting someone versus sitting in like a middle place where we don't need to know everything unless they want us to know everything. We actually really have to respect people's limits and their preferences around what they share with us. I'm going to look at the comments. I, I call you like the language of everything, even harmful, being an attempted solution by a person. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a great uh, interpretation or, or paraphrasing of the concepts we're talking about here. And then lastly, self-efficacy is necessary for behavior change. This is that like, this is that pointer that even if you don't like what someone's doing, you will not get anywhere in sort of supporting their recovery or furthering their treatment unless they are in the driver's seat, unless they are their autonomy is truly respected, because that is what supports self-efficacy. And if people don't have a sense of self-efficacy, which self-efficacy, as we talked about yesterday, is a super protective factor uh, for mood and self-esteem, it kind of needs to be there. Just like when people take on labels, take on roles that make them feel useful and important and valued, that's the stuff that gets people to a better place kind of holistically. And that can help with even instances of symptoms of serious mental illness. 
So self-efficacy is necessary for behavior change. And even in instances when we may think we know best, we may think we have the best idea, the best advice, we you know, really wanna, wanna advise someone about the dangers of their heroin use or whatever, we've gotta remember, we, we have to protect the self-efficacy. We have to actually nurture that and um, think of ways to reinforce that and encourage that someone has that highlight where they have it. I like to think of behavioral activation a lot around this, sort of simple things we can do to reinforce that someone is really effective in their own life. And that's what's gonna get them to the point of being that strong agent of uh, recovery for themselves. So Paul, you're giving me a great seg into the next slide of the dignity of risk. Has anyone heard of the concept of the dignity of risk? If you've been to some of our other trainings, it, it's come up uh, from me probably presenting this exact same slide. So you may have heard it in those cases, um, or you may have also heard this as therapeutic risk. That's another sort of more clinical term. This one's a bit more of a harm reductionist term, I would say. Um, but the dignity of risk is this concept that, that highlights the need for us to not only make our own choices, but uh, live through our own mistakes, have the, have the option to fail. This is also thought of as the right to fail, sort of we have this right to succeed or fail, but we have the right to do it. Um, and it's really critical for humans to have this. We, one, because that's how we learn. So I think everyone can, can imagine an instance in their life where they were, oh gosh, making a decision, following a path that people in their life advise them against. So maybe it was me moving to New York City many years ago without having a job set up and just having savings. I heard from some people that might not be the best idea. And I was like, meh, I wanna do it. I learned eventually a year in that uh, it wasn't maybe the best idea. Um, and I, I kind of had to do an adaptation in, in life and, and scramble to sort of reestablish myself there. I, you know, I don't think I would have learned so many of the skills I have now, uh, so many sort of um, ways of coping, uh, ways of navigating life, uh, resourcefulness. I wouldn't have that unless I had made that mistake myself, unless I had been allowed to sort of half fail. And that was really critical. Same goes for relationships. You know, we learn with each, each failed relationship is something that's commonly thought of. And when the folks that we're working with that might not always make decisions that put them in the greatest uh, place of safety or wellness or might uh, have be loaded with risk, we still have to support people in having that choice. And we do it in an active way. So on this slide, we've also got the neglect overprotective continuum. And here we're trying to display that as providers, we've got a couple options. We can be overprotective. So when we're working with someone who, gosh, maybe they're living in an encampment and they don't have good uh, hygiene practices and uh, or there may be a drug user as well. So uh, they're just a great risk, especially in this context right now, there can be an urge to be, be directive and tell them like, you need to do this, 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 and this, right? I, I know I'm feeling that even with like family members of mine that I've even veered towards being a little directive right now. And then like, oh, right, that's not really the helpful way to be. They're probably not appreciating that approach. I actually just need to have an open conversation about how things are going and what decisions they're making, right? Um, but we can, when we are faced with people that we are, we care about, we, we, you know, we deeply care about the people we serve. And it's scary. It's really hard to cope with the risk that people are, are the risks people are facing. Um, with that, we could go in the other direction too. And this is sort of neglect kind of reminds me of the 
the misinterpretation of a harm reduction approach of someone's just going to use drugs and we, we're supposed to respect their autonomy. So I'm just going to not bother talking about it with them and just whatever they're going to do what they're going to do. It's not, it's not my place to tell them what to do. And that's actually not really what we want to do. We still want to talk to people and be, um, we still want to bring up these topics. We still want to let them know like, Hey, I really want to understand what this, what these choices are like for you, what, what it's like for you to, um, maybe what's a risky thing. Yeah. Drug use is a really easy one or not taking a medication that it's pretty clear. They have a pattern of going into crisis every time they don't take it. Um, we can't just be like, it's their choice, whatever. We have to still be like talking to them about it and doing it in an equanimous sort of power sharing way that still reinforces their own autonomy, choice, self-determination, self-efficacy, but isn't uh, directive and shaming or advising in a strong way. That's what we want to avoid. So we want to be in the middle, right? And I think when burnout occurs, we can veer towards either side. Most people tend, I think, to veer towards neglect because they're just, they're a little shut off. They're not having that curiosity. They're not as empathically connected. They're not able to think on that larger level. Um, and being in the middle here is hard work. This is, this is really tough stuff because you're, you don't know, you're not in control. And one of the things we, we have to do is make peace with the fact that we cannot control, we cannot we cannot truly uh, help, you know, people who are making decisions that may harm themselves, except for instances when they're at uh, risk of harm to themselves or others. Um, that, I mean, that's our grave disability. These are the only instances when we can take someone's autonomy and choice away. And the rest of the time, we really shouldn't veer towards conversations that might even do that. So sitting in the middle there, hard stuff. It's, it's ambiguous. It's hard to know where you sit. Um, and this is when we really need to rely on our colleagues. We need to rely on supervision, on team consultation, on getting guidance around like, am I doing enough or am I doing too little? How can I respect someone's autonomy and choice and encourage self-responsibility um, reinforce empowerment while not overprotecting or neglecting and sitting in the middle is hard. And this slide is really about this sort of acceptance of people are going to have the, they have the dignity of risk and they're going to make choices that are harmful to themselves, but they will learn through that. And I can stay engaged in a, a power sharing manner with them while they're doing that that we have to make peace of the fact that that accepting that doesn't mean we're approving their decisions. It doesn't mean we're enabling them. Um, enabling isn't really something that happens. It's not something we can necessarily do. People have a lot more power over themselves than we ever will. Um, and with that, I would I throw it out there that practicing radical acceptance for this is a way that you can care for yourself as providers. This is how you can kind of mitigate the potential for burnout. Because um, when we overtake responsibility internally when we, we believe that we have more power and control over people than we really do, that can kind of burn us out. That's where we get exhausted because we're like, I keep trying and they're not getting better and they're, I, I'm so scared. And you're carrying that all yourself. That's no good. We can't be doing that. And it happens sometimes, but that's when we have to rely again on colleagues and maybe create a practice uh, that's based in sort of this this mindfulness approach. Uh, radical acceptance is a, a component of distress tolerance and emotional regulation from DBT. This is something we can do for ourselves that can really bail us out when we're feeling like, wow, I just, I don't know if I can sit with the reality that this person's going through. It's too scary. And especially right now.
Um, so radical acceptance, accepting life and not resisting things that you cannot change or choose to not change. Um, the serenity prayer kind of rings true here too. Um, yeah, what else is on this slide? So how, how do you all maintain person-centeredness when your client is doing something that goes against your beliefs, hopes, or values? Do you have things that you do, things that you tell yourself? Sometimes, you know, you might have sort of mantras or, or theories or concepts that you fall back on. Or what is it, are there things that you do for yourself that help ground you in staying person-centered despite the fear, despite uh, the lack of making sense of the lack of control? Is there anything that you all do that you can type into the chat box? The, seren the serenity prayer works for you. Wonderful, meditation. So being present and finding some, a way to ground yourself is helpful. Yeah, because our emotions can run away with us, right? I, all the time. I mean, it's fear is powerful stuff and it can help to get a little space from those feelings and, and find acceptance for them. Reminding myself of what is out of my control. Yep. There's a lot that's out of our control. People really are going to do what they are going to do. And uh, then the systems are out of our control too. Wow. Like this is in some ways we, we, we picked this job, but did anyone say how hard it would be uh, to, to do this work, to try and help people with the restrictions that exist? Yeah. Supervision, self-talk, uh, reminding myself it's not about me. Wonderful. Right. Yeah. It's actually, we can feel these, we can have these reactions and these, these struggles, these internal struggles, but we've got to do for, we have to, we have to be in service of the people we serve and really still connect to what their experience is and, and fight to use that empathy and compassion. Understanding their limits, our clients hear things when they are ready, not when we want them to, exactly. We, we've got to follow their agenda and schedule. So as I was just talking about, um, a little bit of burnout prevention, sort of tip work here, things that we can do to uh, keep ourselves grounded are really important. Another skill that you could use is when you're working with folks, um, thinking about who is responsible for whom and to what extent. So again, hope we carry that sometimes. Empowerment is the sort of reinforcing of what the person, you know, the person's own agency and power and choice. Self-responsibility includes this partnership. It's really about defining what am I going to do for the person? What are they going to do themselves? And what are we going to work on together? Um, expectation setting from the outset of treatment can be really critical here. And that is something you do early on and can be renegotiated over time. But I know there, I know some of you, all of you probably have had instances of feeling really roped into someone's, someone's work, someone's recovery work, and that you might be working harder than they are, or that they need you more than you're available. And having sort of transparent conversation and expectation setting, especially around crisis planning, frequency and context of visits, that's really critical stuff to, to explicitly define and then check back in on because then you'll know when you're doing enough. You can still consult with colleagues, uh, engage in supervision, but you will know you're following an agreement. You're also going to be modeling sort of consistency. This can help with that, that, uh, uh, that the secure attachment that really ideally should develop in the therapeutic relationship to help someone learn, like, 
these are these are appropriate boundaries and I know I can expect to have my needs met at this time as agreed upon and that I won't be abandoned. Um, those are pieces that are really healing just about the one-on-one the -on -one relationship you have with clients if you can do this expectation setting and then be consistent with it. And also on here, we've got accepting our limitations as I was just talking about. There are so many limitations on the work that we have. We are, I mean, it's, we do MacGyver work, right? Um, we are really working within a lot of restrictions. And right now, wow, like <laughs> who, who could have guessed this would be um, a new set of them that's come out in, in this uh, pandemic era. All right, and we talked a tiny bit about uh, supporting autonomy in restrictive contexts. These come up in a number of ways, uh, incarceration or parole or probation, conservatorship, 5150s, domestic violence situations. Um, this can be an interesting type of restrictive context where, again, there's, there are limitations that are put upon a person by an external body and that's not us. Um, and working within that, finding ways to support someone's autonomy when they have restricted choice. Uh, that can look like working to find out where they do have control, working to find out where they can exercise their agency, where they uh, can make decisions. Um, in particular, like I think about sort of parole or probation or conservatorship is this sort of uh, maybe uh, it can feel a little bit like purgatory for some people. Like they can almost have uh, control. They're in, they're in the, the world, they're not incarcerated or they're not institutionalized. But at the same time, they have to follow certain guidelines. They have to do certain things. Um, they're restricted and finding ways for, to enhance an individual's sense of empowerment, that they do have, they do have choice even within that, to look at the, the long term of you have to follow this plan or not do these certain things at this time. But that is all for the end goal of you having greater independence, self-determination, and autonomy. So really connecting to that um, the, the long game of uh, seeking back the, the rights that they are restricted from. Um, power sharing, shared decision-making and advocacy techniques are critical uh, in working with people in restrictive contexts. Um, does anyone have any particular skills or things they like to remind folks of when they are working with them in restrictive contexts to, to mitigate that, you know, feeling like some, you don't have options does not feel good. Humans do not like that at all. It's, it's really tough for us. And it's really hard, I imagine, when you are someone who is institutionalized and you're told that this is to help you and you're, and you're feeling that this, this couldn't be anything further from that. Really hard to connect back to the purpose of being in a restricted context. Eleanor kind of speaks to that of, I can't remember the quote that she uses, but uh, she wishes the voice had told her she was digging her own grave as she shared um, about the voice hearing and where that led her into a position that she was institutionalized, she had to receive treatment and it, it was not helpful for her. Now, many people, this might not be the case, that it might really make sense for them and not everyone's gonna have that experience, but for those who do struggle, that who, who are harmed by the restrictive context, this is something that we can intervene around. All right, so if anyone has skills or techniques that they use when working with people in restrictive contexts to help support their maintaining their sense of self-responsibility in their in their recovery sort of keeping their eye on on the ball um maintaining a sense of an em empowered self uh if there are things that you do feel free to throw them up in the chat um 
I think everyone can probably guess at what supported decision-making means. Uh, we're gonna share a resource on that in just a second. Um, but we wanted to put it up here kind of explicitly because it is a skill. Uh, supported or shared decision-making is a skill. It, just like motivational interviewing, that seems like just a subtle re rewording of, of the things that we are meaning to talk about, can be so powerful in enhancing power sharing and in, in reinforcing an individual sense of control and choice. Uh, supported decision-making does the same thing. So we think about this a lot um, in instances where you're, you're, you're helping someone think through what they want to be doing, but you might have some, some uh, specialized knowledge about the, the topic. So you might have a lot to offer and you might have a lot of power in the situation, but really trying to guide them in a power sharing manner to uh, make the best informed decision possible. So supported decision-making goes beyond informed consent by aiming to decrease the informational and power asymmetry between providers and consumers by increasing a person's information and control over their own treatment. So it's an instance where we might be sharing a lot of information with permission, of course, we might be saying like, hey, can, can I talk to you about the medication that your psychiatrist is thinking uh, that you should take? Maybe we can think through the, the, the benefits of it, the side effects, and really weigh that out. And then maybe that's, you can go further with that skill and help them advocate for themselves and state what they really want with their doctor if you're present. Those are sort of examples of using the skill of supported or shared decision-making. People must be adequately informed of their treatment options and each option's pros and cons. Providers must be adequately informed of the person's values and attitudes. So we have to have knowledge of, of the person's preferences and use that as a guide to what, what we're gonna bring up in conversation. Um, SAMHSA has some wonderful tools on their website. Uh, the link is up here. It, this is <laughs> a section of their brass tacks. I'm forgetting what that acronym stands for, but they have a cool tools really dorkily named uh, webpage that includes some supported and shared decision-making tools. Some are just as simple as some prompts like conversation starters. How, what verbs can you use? What, what are the best, is it I, is it you? What pronouns? Uh, how can you frame sentences? How can you frame questions to elicit someone's preferences and be able to share knowledge in a way that doesn't feel overly directive to them um, or prescriptive? The, uh, these cool tools also include some modules, I believe around um, medication assisted treatment for opioid use and also taking psychotropic medication. So have, they're full of loads of information. These are like interactive modules that you could actually go through with a client um, if you had them sitting with you at a computer or you could send them to and they, if they were capable of doing that. Um, and you could use these to offer information, help them think through uh, what they want, and then find ways to, to state that. All right, so looking in the, in the chat, David, thank you. You make a list of things that we do have control over. That's something that you use as a, as a skill with folks when you're working with people in restrictive contexts. So um, making concrete what a person has control over, yeah. So we're going to uh, resume the, the presentation today in talking about a meaningful role. And hopefully I'm only gonna spend about 10 minutes talking about this so we could watch another short video and then dive into our exercise. So the next slide we have this, um, it, it, I hope this helps to demonstrate how, how I kind of think about 
meaningful role and, and how important this is. And I'll use, a, I'll use an analogy as I always do uh, to, to help demonstrate this. And I'm gonna shift focus. I know we've been talking about some heavy stuff most of the day, so let's shift focus for a moment. So I want to demonstrate how important it is that we have purpose and meaning in our life or that we have a role that matters. Um, I, I'm going to use, I, I'll use a story about myself. Uh, it's not really a story, but um, first, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of the joke uh, or ever heard this joke before. How do you know if someone is a marathon runner? Well, the answer is they will tell you. And so I'm telling you right now that one of the roles in my life or one of uh, something that gave me purpose and meaning um, is being a runner and specifically being a marathon runner. Now, I, I don't I, it's been about five years since I've done one and um, that's fine, but I'm going to use this to hopefully demonstrate this. So here on the, on the uh, slide, we have, it's a bridge. Uh, hopefully it looks like a bridge. <laughs> and so we have meaning and purposes like that roadway. And I'm also going to interchange that with role. And remember, we have multiple roles in our lives, you know, as a, a, aside from, you know, running marathons, I'm also a partner, I'm, I'm a guardian of a pet, and uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a social worker, I'm a, a trainer, like lots of those things. So, and those are all really meaningful to me. So I'm just going to focus on the one though. And and it's different when I set that goal, I set the goal uh, probably, uh, I guess it was maybe 10 years ago. Um, it wasn't simply a goal of I want to work out or I want to be, I want to exercise, I want to run. No, I, I, I unintentionally, I really didn't think about this concept then, but unintentionally, I'm like, no, I want to have this new role of being somebody who is able to run marathons. I'm like, I thought that was pretty incredible. And so that was kind of what gave me meaning and purpose, at least that aspect of myself. And in order to support that, so remember, you know, being a marathon runner is that road. It's that, it's uh, uh, kind of the main, uh, that big black line that goes straight across the middle. But it doesn't, it needs to be supported in order for that to actually be successful. Just like this bridge is going to fall into the water if it doesn't have those supports. So let's connect it to values first. So um, in thinking about uh, running a marathon, I have to have the right values in order to succeed in that. If, if I don't value things like health, if I don't value routine or discipline, my bridge is not going to be held up. Those are really important. And those values, so those are values that I do have. I do have, I, I value routine. I value discipline. I, I value um, good health and doing things to keep healthy. And so those work really well for this role in life, as well as many, you know, of course, other roles in life as well. Um, so those values can really extend to multiple bridges if we look at it from that perspective. But again, for this example, I need to have that discipline. And so those things were consistent. And along with that, so I have this desire, I have this role in mind of who I want to be and what I want to achieve. I have the values that support that, but we also have to set goals that are going to contribute 
to uh, me achieving that purpose in life, me achieving that role that I want. And they also have to be aligned with my, with my values. So the goals that I had set in order to achieve this role is, okay, I need to develop a training plan. I need to eat a little bit better. Maybe I need to not drink so much on the weekends because that's when I have a big uh, training run to do. Um, I have to uh, set benchmarks for how many miles and perhaps how fast I want to run. Um, and so, and I, I did all of that. And of course it wasn't easy, but all of those things were aligned for me. Um, now, if, you know, if I had a goal of, you know, uh, perhaps I wanted to, I wanted to party every Saturday night, well, that might not be consistent with this uh, role that I was hoping to achieve in life. So, um, so that's how those three things come together for me with that very specific role. Now, let's take that and look at, you know, we'll take a somewhat uh, arbitrary, I, I guess, uh, issue that we might see with, with some of our clients. And we often talk about work. Work is a really important role. Obviously, I define myself as a social worker. Um, I often kind of use this uh, use this uh, anecdote to describe that, you know, if somebody, if I'm, if I'm at a party, which uh, clearly is not the right thing to do right now, but if I'm at a party and I meet people and I'm like, you know, people typically ask, oh, what do you do? I don't say, oh, I'm a paid employee. Like, no, that's not very impactful. I mean, it's true, but I say, no, I'm a social worker because that's something I really, I really take ownership in. So think about that with your clients. Yes, we want our clients to get a job or to work and be productive, but we want them to do more than that. We don't want their role to be paid employee. I mean, we do, but we want them to get more meaning out of that. What do you actually want to what do you want to do? What role do you want to have? Do you want to be a nurse? Do you want to be a teacher? Do you want to be a social worker? Do you want to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Like, yes, that's that captures the employment piece, but it's so much more than that because it has a lot of meaning to it. And then, um, you know, once we've kind of identified that role, we could look at what values does that individual have to support that. So you're like, oh, I really like to help people. That's awesome. That is a wonderful value to have. And that's consistent with wanting to be a nurse or wanting to be a social worker or wanting to be a professional counselor. Um, what other values would somebody, uh, may somebody have if their role and purpose in life was uh, to get a job maybe in the helping profession? I'm sure we could think of many different things. And then we have to add goals in there. We know that if one of our clients identifies that they want to be a, uh, a marriage and family therapist, we know that it just doesn't happen. Like, like we have to set those goals and maybe it's, um, maybe some of those goals, um, again, they have to align with what that individual's values are. Um, but maybe the, uh, maybe the goal would be um, maybe cut back on drinking or maybe go into sobriety if they're ready for that step. Um, maybe it's, go back to school to get a GED or maybe finish your bachelor's degree. Uh, who knows, whatever those goals may be. But again, there has to be that alignment. So it are the treatment plans that we typically utilize in FSP and mental health programs, we are typically starting with those goals. And we oftentimes don't outline the values and the purpose and meaning and roles that we hope to achieve with those goals. And that's okay. We don't have to necessarily put them on paper, but to be able to explore with somebody that we're working with, 
um, you know, when somebody has a goal on their treatment plan to secure uh, to secure a stable uh, a stable place to live, that's a great goal. But then let's tie that into what the individual values and how that contributes to their overall purpose and meaning. And so if somebody's goal is to get housing, that's great. What value do they have? Well, maybe they value independence. Maybe they value self-sufficiency. Um, or, and, and then maybe their purpose in life again is to be a nurse. And so typically it, it's helpful to have a stable place to live in, when you're being a nurse, because you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. So again, we're able to build all of those connections and it still meets those documentation requirements we have with treatment plans and treat, don't get me wrong, treatment plans are really important, um, but it goes deeper than that. And you can also use this this paradigm really to, um, you can use this to help uh, help individuals make decisions. So, you know, if we're able to create the structure for somebody, we have their goals and they've been kind of connected to their values and connected to maybe a purpose that they've identified, yet they're still using crystal meth. We know that typically if we say don't do crystal meth, it's bad for you, uh, you know, Oftentimes, that's not the most successful intervention. It's going to take, it may take many more tries than that. But we could talk to them about, wow, I, you know, you shared with me, or it appears like you're, you're currently high, and I know you have this goal. I know you want to be a nurse. I know you want to be self-sufficient. I know you want to live on your own. Is this, is this helping you achieve that? Is this bringing you closer? to those values that you hold dearly that we've talked about? Does this uh, fulfill that role in your life? And maybe they're not able to see at that moment how some of those decisions don't necessarily hold them back. That's okay. It might take some time to do that. It might take them um, more experience and learning to see how these, the, how these three things come together. Um, with this slide, really, I think it's important to just uh, really just think about this. Um, we won't talk about, about it too much, but we compare meaningful versus productive. They're both really important, um, but it might be worth processing with the people that you work with um, how important it, it is to have something that's meaningful. Where productive is great, sometimes though they don't necessarily overlap. Um, sometimes people don't feel that, uh, um, you know, maybe collecting cans on the street is a very productive role, but if it gives somebody a sense of meaning, then do we really want to take that away from them and try to, not that we would, obviously that's not very person-centered, but, um, but again, it's like just recognizing the meaning that somebody gets from the things that they do, or what kind of meaning will they get from um, from the goals that they set for themselves. So again, more about thinking about that as opposed for us to talking about it today. Um, this is a, um, there's a strengths assessment and we included this assessment in your handout package. And again, it's not something you should, that we, that we think you should do with every client, but this is simply a tool that you can use to perhaps help elicit some of those strengths from the people that you work with. 
And here is just a quick uh, overview of it. And like there's four categories of strengths listed, personal attributes, talents and skills, interests, and then environmental strengths. And so looking at those things, it'll go through in different categories, what, what the individual currently has in that category. And you guys can do some processing around that or just have some good discussion about you know, how, what are some of their personal attributes that they consider to be really strong? And looking at environmental strengths, like this is a really important one and, and something that sometimes gets neglected, but what are some things outside of that individual that can be viewed as resources that aren't necessarily part of that person, but they're things that they can access. They're within the community, they're within the environment that, that is a strength. And so um, it may be that there's a, that there's a church that the that this individual really gets a lot of power from and so that would be one of those environmental strengths that, that they have to access so again we encourage you to just look at that tool if it's in your packets and um, feel free to use it with the client or just use it as something that you uh, just for your own uh, personal processing about um, a specific individual we'll go to the next slide which is about a specific model and this, uh, we're focusing on this model just because it is such a, uh, it's such a strong recovery oriented model and individual uh, placement and support. This model really uh, emphasizes the, how beneficial it is for people to have a meaningful role in life. And it, it focuses on if somebody wants to work then let's get them out there, give them the supports to do it and help them find those jobs and we'll support them throughout that. And not necessarily, like oftentimes we have, uh, we, we tend to think of jobs like, oh, maybe you can be a peer specialist or maybe you can, um, you know, volunteer at our organization. This program kind of goes above and beyond that. They they, if you want to work at, uh, if you want to work at Walgreens, if you want to work at Best Buy, if you want to, um, if you want to, uh, again, be a nurse, like, let's go out and do it. And we'll uh, provide the support throughout that process, as opposed to saying, well, why don't we start off, maybe we'll keep you in this workforce, maybe you can volunteer with our organization first. Say, no, if that's not what the individual wants to do, then let's go for it. Let's go for what, what you've identified is your goal. Um, did I capture that all right there, Elizabeth? I'm just gonna- Yeah, I think, yeah, IPS is interesting because it's, a, it's a, you know, it's really focused on competitive employment and it sees that everyone has the capacity to, to work in competitive employment. So it's, it's bold in that way. And so it has some, you know, people critique it also saying that, wow, some of those other meaningful roles could be, are great for people. And, you know, it's, let's not say that everyone should be in competitive employment. Isn't that a little capitalist? La la la. I think there are a number of uh, sort of, thoughts around IPS, um, but it's, it's a great example of this. It's one interpretation of a pro-recovery, a really recovery-oriented uh, approach to vocational rehabilitation um, that just says, nope, everyone should be able to engage in competitive employment. And it's not, uh, we're not, um, it's non-recovery-oriented to think that they can't, so. 
So in contrast to IPS, and IPS isn't anti-peer workforce or anything like that, um, but just as another example of a recovery-oriented, uh, an example of a recovery-oriented meaningful role, there's the uh, peer specialist workforce. And I know that's not something that's really huge NLA just yet. Peer certification um, needs to be passed in the state. And, you know, I think we can expect to see more uh, more training programs, more of a presence of peers or people formally trained or informally trained who have lived experience that are using that lived experience paired with knowledge, uh, clinical skills and knowledge to support others that are going through things that are similar to what they went through. So I'm again, I worked in New York City before coming here and the, the peer movement's pretty, pretty big there. Um, and the agency I worked for had one of the original peer training institutes founded in 95. It's called Howie the Harp. Um, it's, it's pretty intense. Uh, the classroom training is about 20 weeks long. There's internship placement. That's 12 weeks of 24 hours a week. So three days a week. And then there's ongoing career employment, um, obtainment support. And we're going to show a quick video that has, uh, some, some interviews with people who went through the Howie the Harp training program and what it meant for them to be, uh, to have the opportunity to take on meaningful role. Um, I think it also relates back nicely to the concept of hope and what it meant, just like we were hearing with Eleanor, that people held out hope for them, that, that someone supported them into really reaching for um, a new meaningful role in becoming a peer specialist. I called him Howie. I knew him as Howie Geld. He didn't get to be known as Howie the Harp until some years later. Um, I mean, and, and that was his professional name, was Howie T. Harp. And Howie T, the T stood for the, and that referred to the blues harp that he played. Playing blues harp was very much a part of who he was, you know, uh, and he really could wail. One thing I think that I really loved about him is that he felt that it, you were qualified if you're going through oppression uh, or you're not a discrimination. And in his case, he was homeless at one time. And he, he also had a physical disability. He used to have a cane. Um, that you're qualified to, to make choices in your own life. You don't have to go outside and talk to another professional. You are qualified. And he really empowered people to really think that way. And he empowered me. When I first heard about Howie the Harp, it was through um, my lawyer named um, Claudia Montoya. And um, she asked me, what is it that you want to do? Um, I was facing the misdemeanor charges, reckless endangerment with a car accident. So she was, I was like, um, at the time I was an exterminator. Um, my car, you know, I st my job was terminated. So I was like, um, I want to help people who are like me. And she immediately said, um, there's this agency called Hobby the Harp. I had an ending where I had been this banker and that had been my identity. And that ended and I crashed and burned. And I had a long period of time where my mental illness dominated and my own feelings about myself dominated my life. And any qualification that I had had disappeared, was gone. Well, I came to Howie the Harp and learned that those, those disqualifications were qualifications. I learned that my lived experience 
was not a negative and not the worst thing in my life. It was actually a real positive. It was a place to start. This is just not like a little peer program and, you know, this is, we're part of any, we can compete with any program, you know, whether it's peer or not. And I think that, you know, um, that inspires people, you know. And I would, you know, people would call me and say, well, you know, I want to take a training and I always give them the number here to Howie the Harp and, and knowing that they're going to get a really good comprehensive training. And um, it's, it's no joke. It's not a two-day training, a week training. It's about six months training. And then you do an internship. My first day as a trainee, they got us together. Uh, and there were multiple speakers. And one of the main speakers um, kind of approached us like the Marines. So the main speaker said, Look to the right of you. Look to the left of you. In six months, those people will not be here. What did I just say? And again, I said, <gasps> and I thought, how am I going to do this? <laughs> Peer services has become a whole lot. And I am so proud to have even played a part in that movement. However, the purpose of peer-supported services is each one teach one. I get up. I reach my hand down and pull you up. You get up, you reach your hand down, and you pull somebody else up. I remember just like having people take the time to be with me when I was having the hardest time and being like, yeah, that's why you have to stay. And it's like, I don't believe you. You know, I think I can't do this, and I think I'm damaged beyond repair, but like, okay. And I mean, how do you describe a place like that? I was met where I was. You, meet me where, you met me where I was and started to work with me as a place to start. The most negative thing, the worst thing in my whole life was a place to start, was a place that made me qualified, was a place that I could start working with a lot of support and teaching and learning. I was able to start moving forward and so far so good. And when I, when I run into my fellow Howie the Harp grads and, and other peers, they're, they've started, and they're moving, and they're achieving, and they're helping, and they're working with other people, so they have starting points. I, I love the movement. I, I, you know, the peer movement is, is what I'm about. Um, this is not a job for me. This is a passion, a passion of mine, you know, to, to assist people who don't have a voice to assist people who, who are helpless and who feel, because growing up in mental health, and um, we, were, we were just told that we have a mental health issue and that is not going to never go away and that you need medication and you need treatment. So thinking about that, it was like, all right, so I have this mental illness and I'm crazy and this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to act crazy. But peer work showed me that even though you do have a mental illness, even though you do have incarceration history, homelessness, substance abuse, you are somebody and you are employable. Employment saved my life. Being employed and learning how to become employable is, is the, the wings beneath my, the wind beneath my wings. Learning that I can work and I can be respected.
it was a major, major experience and how with the harp. It was learning everything in a di totally different way uh, from my point of view. And from there on, everything changed. Everything changed for me. I knew who I was and I knew I was not alone. I knew that I have rights. It changed my life even in the way that I told to my daughters. It was not a, like I would say like a rude way or that I used to, but this time it was more certain of who I was and what I want. I mean, there just was nothing challenging recommended to us that used our cerebral intelligence and all our strengths. It was, you know, go stamp a form. That was what was on offer. So it was just miraculous to think of being able to be useful in multiple ways in spite of or even because of our diagnoses. Never heard of the word peer. I never heard the word support. I never heard of the things like, I never heard of like mad pride. I'd never heard of like the insane patient liberation movement. And I'm like, I kind of come from an 80s punk rock sort of place. And I was like, this is rad. I love this, you know? I really like how some of those graduates, all very different, um, tie together what their process was like. And I think they, you know, I, I, I see, you see hope, you see empowerment, you see them taking on challenges that were really scary um, for them and where they were at at that time. Um, being believed in and proving to themselves that they could get into that self-responsibility stage and take on meaningful role. Um, and just one way of doing it is this, and what an amazing way to have that support also ongoing um, and be able to help others. But yeah, I thought that was a, a nice way to tie this up. And we're going to continue to kind of bring everything together through reading through a vignette together, um, a story of a fictional character, and then we're gonna do some discussion around it. Um, just a couple of pieces about the vignette we're gonna go through. Um, so this is not a real person, as we just mentioned, and these images are not, they are of a real person. This is more of the photography uh, by Suzanne Stein that we've been showing all along, um, but this is not a person named Raquel. We don't know this individual, and we don't know this uh, story is not based off of anyone real. Um, there's uh, some trauma um, described in this story and we encourage you take care of yourself. Um, take a minute. If you, if you don't want to engage around the content, if it's uncomfortable, do what's right for you. Um, we're going to get started on reading. All right, let's learn about Raquel's background. So Raquel is a 29-year-old Black female who currently lives on Skid Row. She has lived on Skid Row since 2017. Raquel was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. She was raised primarily by her mother along with her two younger sisters. Raquel and her two sisters share the same father. However, he has been incarcerated since 1999. Even prior to his arrest, he had very little contact with Raquel and her sisters. He was physically abusive to Raquel's mother, and after the birth of Raquel's youngest sister, he was kicked out of the home for good. This was a <clears throat> huge step for Raquel's mother. When Raquel was 11, her mother began dating Richard, a man that she met at work. Um, after about a year of dating, he was terminated from his job and moved in with Raquel's mother and the children. Raquel's mom was disappointed that he was having a hard time finding work, but she was appreciative that he was able to watch her children while she was at work. She no longer needed to use daycare. 
When Raquel was 14, she began to demonstrate odd behaviors that caused one of her teachers to take notice. She appeared to be increasingly guarded and appeared suspicious of others. The teacher made a referral to the school counselor and Raquel followed through. Raquel disclosed that she was nervous about how others look at her at school, forcing her to become more isolated. The school counselor recommended that Raquel wear looser fitting clothing to avoid the attention. Raquel did not meet with the counselor again. The counselor followed up with the referring teacher and said, Raquel's fine. She's not getting beat at home, so there's nothing more I need to do. Raquel's concern that others were watching her gradually increased. When she reflected on the counselor's comment about her clothes and how Richard always com comments on her womanly appearance, she thought that perhaps they are right. Perhaps people are looking at me because of my body. However, something about this explanation did not seem right to Raquel. At age 15, Raquel's suspicion about how other people looked at her intensified. That year, Raquel began wearing baggy sweatshirts to hide her body. She was even nicknamed Baggy around her school. While that name bothered Raquel, she was even more disturbed by how other students and teachers were able to read her mind. No one ever told her that they could read her thoughts, but she could tell by how they looked at her. Raquel felt relief because she now knew why people stared at her and followed her around. But this revelation led to more pain and paranoia. Every day, Raquel was alone with Richard for a couple hours until her sisters got home from school along with her mother. Richard was accustomed to hearing Raquel go into her room and he has frequently heard her crying or even talking. One day he decided to intervene. His efforts to comfort her were unhelpful and his patience for Raquel was short. He told her that he knew what would make her feel better. He forced himself on her. He told her that she deserved it because she was lying about stories of people looking at her and knowing things about her. He told her that she could tell her mother about the incident but her mother would not believe her because Raquel was already making up stories. Raquel believed him. Richard continued to ra rape Raquel on a regular basis. Raquel remained silent, not wanting her mother to think that she was a liar. Raquel's world felt out of control. She felt vulnerable both in public and when at home alone with Richard. Raquel started to distance herself from her mother. She felt like she was deceiving her mother because of the forced sex that she was having with Richard. Because she felt that Richard was the only person in the world to show her what she thought was affection, she began to confide in him about how people at school stare at her and are able to read her thoughts. She told him how she sees strangers following her to and from school. She even disclosed to him about how she saw two students from school leaving her home as she was approaching. They must have been setting up cameras in the home. Richard, who was at first very confused by these stories, began to think she was crazy. He told her that the only way to stay safe from these people was to continue to please him. He would, uh, he would be able to keep these people from physically harming her as long as she continued to have sex with them. This continued until Raquel was 17. At age 17, Raquel's fear escalated. She was confident that everyone at the school knew that she was having sex with Richard. She knew that they were going to tell her mother. She was also convinced that once they told her mother, they would kill her. Raquel hit a breaking point. As a senior in high school, she decided to run. She had saved some money and purchased a train ticket to Los Angeles. She hoped that she could be a complete stranger in LA and start a new life. As expected, her new life in Los Angeles was problematic. She attempted to get a part-time job, but her paranoia kept her paralyzed. She spent one night at a shelter, but felt extremely uncomfortable. As with many others, she opted to live on the street. However, she couldn't understand why people in LA were also able to read her thoughts. She hoped to leave this problem behind her, but even thousands of miles away, her mind was an open book. Once people realized how terrible her thoughts were and what a freak she was, they were gonna to wanna to get rid of her, just like in Chicago. She would only eat food that is sealed out of fear of being poisoned. 
She was introduced to meth, which helped her to stay awake at night. She also began to have sex with some men in the area, thinking that they may protect her. Within the first few months of living on the street, she met a man who lived in a small apartment nearby. She gradually spent more and more time there until she was no longer living on the streets. They lived together for five years, but their relationship ended abruptly for reasons unknown. He was never seen again, and Raquel found herself living on the streets, further traumatized and isolated. All right. So uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, again, we have more parts of the story as it unfolds, but we want to take this break and ask a few questions. So we have them up on the screen here and, and feel free to start typing whenever, you, whenever you're ready. But in hearing the story about Raquel, uh, what role do you think stigma, labeling, trauma, implicit bias potentially play in the story? I realize that's kind of a really big question. And so you, <laughs> there's a lot to really type out there. So you could feel free to just uh, send us a quick message of, you know, a certain part of the story that you think um, things might have uh, played a role in there. And I, I guess while, while you all uh, think about that and, and type messages in, um, I mean, I guess, you know, Elizabeth, I was thinking like, wow, the, like the stigma of just being like, she had this nickname in school. And like, I know it's like, that certainly must have played a role. I know it wasn't the most damaging nickname, mm -hmm. but like, what do you think of a name like Baggy? Again, not the worst thing that people have been called, but like, how do you think that would impact her and like how she feels about herself? Right. It's sort of dehumanizing to just be labeled or given a sort of a, a it's almost objectifying too to have a, a name that has to do with physical appearance and especially something that's derogatory. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like like being being named based off of a behavior. You know, she wore baggy clothing, and that's the name they they assigned to her. And uh, you know, I think we it, it kind of connects to what we were talking about on Wednesday, where you know, if somebody's demonstrating behaviors that are consistent with uh, what's a, a hoarding disorder, we we call them a hoarder, and. Yeah, it's dehumanizing. It's capturing an entire person based upon one one element, mm -hmm. uh, one behavior that people might have picked up on. Mm -hmm. What do we think about where's implicit bias in this? And maybe sort of related to that, what's going on with the school counselor? Could could implicit bias have been something that was a factor, maybe, for the school counselor? What do we think? Mm -hmm. She, she really, she didn't spend much time assessing what was going on with Raquel and she, she didn't really, she didn't seem to ask a lot of questions and kind of brush things off and suggested that she just um, wear, you know, change her appearance. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a way, and I know we're talking and I know we're not getting any comments. So I'm hoping that while we're talking, we'll start to get some comments um, or, or some thoughts and questions. Um, but, uh, oh, yeah, thank you, Shalita. So assuming physical abuse could be the only issue. And that ties exactly into what you were saying, Elizabeth. It's this um, kind of just this assumption, like this school counselor is so used to mm -hmm. perhaps just, they're probably burned out. And they're so used to dealing with uh, DCFS calls or, or child protection calls. And uh, when she saw, or he saw that that wasn't the place, just dismissed it. 
mm-hmm. uh, like really missed a key opportunity for early intervention here. Right. No curiosity at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, I, I know I'd mentioned burnout, I imagine plays a role in this, but um, <laughs> still, it's pretty significant. And we can see how damaging that mm-hmm. could be. One missed opportunity could have really turned Raquel's life around. Um, I see some other comments. So uh, Karen shows how easily it could be to diagnose this person's schizophrenia or schizoaffective if they presented as an adult when really it's trauma and presents a psychosis. Yeah, that's <laughs> It's a great comment. You know, we were, as like we developed this scenario, um, you know, in my mind and Elizabeth's mind, like she most likely is diagnosed with schizophrenia, but also trauma has a huge impact in this. They kind of went hand in hand. Um, And you're right, sometimes symptoms of trauma actually could look very much like psychosis. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. It's something that we've had a lot of dialogue about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of gray area, especially since she's kind of young. And you think about the origin of, of her paranoia, um, you know, some of that was appropriate and adaptive. Um, and then, of course, over time, things change. Uh, Hassan, you commented that school, the school counselor only focused on the extra issues and didn't really thoroughly check in about her overall wellness. Yeah, that's that, you know, burnout helps us not see whole people um and implicit bias does the same thing uh and when we when we're not when our scope when our sort of lens is narrowed we're not looking in a person-centered way um she's just look assessing for one uh issue and not not at all uh looking at raquel as a whole person being thorough uh brenda you say also assume the client was okay after one session or meeting yeah there's loads of missed opportunity here there's much more that could have been done that would have been probably pretty low effort um on the school counselor's part but you do see this a lot yeah karen and just to kind of uh continue on your point elizabeth you made such a good point along with along with hassan just like how the school counselor is so narrowly focused and it's so interesting because I just had a conversation with our colleague, Jean, uh, the other day, and we were talking about how uh, when crisis arises, particularly around uh, suicidal ideation, um, that it can be so easy to narrowly focus on that, which you mm-hmm. need to, because obviously it's crisis and it's important, but sometimes it's so easy to not see and hear the other things that are going on with that individual as we as professionals are responding to this one thing that really triggers us because it's important and it should, but it's like, how do you, you know, making sure that you're, you're not so narrowly focused, that you're missing other things. Yeah. Uh, and, and not really deeply connecting with or, understanding what the the individual is experiencing in that moment when doing a a risk assessment and asking a lot of pointed questions and targeted questions. Yeah, very good. Very good example. Yeah, and and, and Brenna, yeah, just (laughs) assuming the client is okay after one session or meeting. Yeah, of course, that's really, really poor practice. And um, I imagine school counselors' jobs are really difficult. um, So I don't mean to... um, to put blame on school counselors this is just one example, but mm. uh, uh, but still, yeah, just that one interaction is clearly not enough to assess for their overall wellness. And now we're going to look at Raquel and the concept of hope. So start thinking about questions as, as I'm reading. 
An outreach team that worked in the area was very familiar with Raquel. She was known to the team as the death stare because of how she looked at them when they would approach. They have tried several times to engage with her, but she would refuse and accuse them of just wanting to kill her. The outreach team just assumed that she was another meth-addicted sex worker. One day in 2019, the outreach team found Raquel unconscious, partially outside of her tent. She seemed to have been assaulted. She was taken to a local hospital where her wounds were treated, uh, oops, excuse me, uh, and she was transferred to a psychiatric unit as she was demonstrating symptoms of psychosis during her treatment. The psychiatric team referred her to an FSP program and the team lead was able to meet with Raquel prior to her discharge. Bob, who's the lead clinician from the FSP team, met with Raquel at the hospital to attempt to engage with her. While at the hospital, Raquel was administered antipsychotic medication that has helped to reduce some of her symptoms. As a result, she was more willing to talk with Bob than she normally would be. Bob introduced himself and asked Raquel to envision herself as her ideal self. Raquel went along with this question as she was thinking that the best way to get out of the hospital is to go along with what mental health professionals were saying. Initially, Raquel stated, my ideal self is to get out of this fucking hellhole. To Raquel's surprise, Bob stated, that's an excellent goal. So to begin painting a picture of the ideal Raquel, leaving the hospital would be the first step. Raquel also stated that she would like to be a private investigator so she can have access to more resources and be able to solve the mystery of people following her and getting information on her. Again, Bob agreed and stated that private investigators were resourceful people and that Raquel is a very resourceful woman. Finally, Raquel stated that she does not want poisonous medications in her blood. Bob validated this request and summarized what the ideal Raquel would look like. Bob stated, it sounds like the ideal Raquel would be out of the hospital, working as a private investigator and not taking medications. Can you try to imagine this? Picture this version of Raquel. Think about this Raquel every time you are feeling distraught or frustrated. Let's reference this version of Raquel regularly. We'll look at different activities that occur in your life and determine if they bring you closer to this goal or push you further away. Hesitantly, Raquel smiled. Okay. Thank you for reading. Brenna, you have a comment. Love the no judgment and reflections from the therapist. So in this uh, vignette, um, and we didn't preface this, but not everyone's doing perfect work. Not everyone's doing uh, ideally recovery-oriented or person-centered uh, care. So can we compare the strategies between the FSP and the outreach team? Remember the FSP team is Bob and the outreach team, we, we heard a little bit about um, how they've uh, tried to work with Raquel at the beginning of this section. And so how do they differ and why was the FSP team successful where the outreach team failed? What do we think? So Vanessa, you say they were supportive and didn't judge her. Like Bob heard her and highlighted her strengths. Yeah. That's great. And there, you know, why she, why Raquel was saying what the ideal Raquel would look like, there were opportunities there for judgment. Bob mm -hmm. could have been like, do you really want to be a private investigator? Like he may think, I don't want to collude with these delusions, or he may think, wow, that's not realistic, but he held back any of those judgments and instead just reflected back. Right. The colluding thing is really interesting because 
what he's actually doing there, it's, it doesn't need to be about uh, agreeing with uh, whether that's a realistic goal for her or not. He's still got to validate and reinforce that she's, she's thinking about something that would have meaning to her in her life and uh, sort of an interest that she has, a motivation that she has. Yeah. And again, like Vanessa said, like he highlighted her strength. So he actually was able to turn that reflection. And he said, yeah, private investigators are resourceful people and you're a very resourceful woman. So what else did Bob say and do to instill hope? Is there anything else he did or said? You know, and I, I think as, as people type in a response on that, um, just kind of comparing that outreach team, they did have a lot of judgment. They gave her mm -hmm. that nickname of death stare. And, um, and I'll automate, like what happens if they got a new staff member and this new staff member is like, okay, we're gonna go meet death stare now. We'll probably get yelled at. So this new staff member is gonna already have these judgments before they've ever even met this, uh, uh, met Raquel on the street. So mm -hmm. anyways, yeah, sorry, back to, we're getting yeah, out of Yeah, thank you for coming <laughs> back. Um, Paul, you say in highlighting her strengths, he's helping tie her goals back into deeper values of her that she may have, right? That mm -hmm. stuff that gets tossed by the wayside, that stuff that doesn't really get, um, doesn't come up in a, an a initial assessment when working with someone, right? That those are our clues to what really matters to someone, what, what they maybe what they wanted when they were younger you know things that are um that make them who they are um he met her at the hospital yep that's that's good um and uh, paul you say maybe roles for her too bob continued to really listen and meet the client where she was hassan uh stacy bob listened to her and empowered her yep he did not tell her what to do karen you say asked her open-ended questions what is your ideal self empower her her yeah yeah we did comments yeah, thank you. Um, he's he's not being a cheerleader, though, right? You know, he's not. That's where uh, it doesn't feel good for anyone, and I think we can all agree with this. When you're in a you're in a rough spot and uh, you're distressed and you're you're wanting things to be better, um, and someone's like, "You can do it. Everything will be fine. Everything's gonna be great. You look at you're so strong. Look at this, like." It doesn't feel good because it doesn't um it doesn't feel like they get it it doesn't feel validating so cheerleading doesn't help if bob doesn't cheerlead he's like yeah you want to get out of this hell hole great okay um he just sort of he takes a more pragmatic um human uh sort of connected approach um megan you say just another methodicted sex worker right that's what the outreach team says puts raquel in a box with the implications of hopeless right loads of stigma there too Bob just looked at her like she was a complex human being with potential, wonderfully put. Yeah. 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 Does anyone know how, like, what do you think, how would this scenario be different if Bob didn't have some uh, hope that Raquel could work towards her recovery? We don't typically talk about Bob's sense of hope, but I think it can be assumed that he did feel hope. And like, if, if he didn't, like, how, how do you think this would have turned out? Right. If he hadn't like genuinely been able to conjure that up, yeah. maybe she wouldn't have believed what he said. Maybe, yeah. maybe she wouldn't have had any buy-in to starting to trust him to have build a relationship. I think sometimes it's so easy to forget that the people we work with, like they can tell when we're giving them just a lot of bullshit, you know? <laughs> I mean, they, 
again, they are incredibly resourceful. They've had many challenges in their life. They've been lied to many times. Like they have a very unique set of skills and um, we can read through that. That definitely comes through. What do you all think Bob should say and do post-discharge? What are his next steps? So he's, he's engaged with her in the hospital. You know, they've had a little bit of um, relationship building, rapport building. What should he do next? And while you're thinking about that, um, yeah, so uh, Bob believed in the vision she had for her ideal self, for sure. Uh, Bob could have closed the FSP referral and said she's not interested in services, right? Because she's not being terribly friendly, um, well, t- difficult to engage. Sure, that could have happened. Um, I wish our psych hospitals in LA had FSP people showing at the hospital. Yeah. Uh, Hassan, you say if Bob did not elicit hope, there would be a lot of hesitation in engaging in her recovery. Yeah, she might not have believed that there was any purpose in continuing to meet with him and talk about this stuff. Right, so she's able to see through it all. Right, like we're all humans. We all we're all good bullshit detectors for the most part. I think, yeah, yeah. Um, so really- what should he do? What should Bob do once? Like, what? How should he? What should he do next with Raquel? What should he focus on? Should he do assessment? Should he see what her case management needs are? Should he start treatment planning? Should he? You know, what, what's going to be, what's the most person-centered next step? Build rapport. Yeah, agreed. Gain trust, absolutely. Trust, yeah. <laughs> Again, everyone's really going back to that, the importance of the relationship. I mm-hmm. so appreciate that. Um, and I wanted to go back really quickly, and then maybe we'll go to the next section of the story mm-hmm. for time's sake. But the... Uh, the closing of the referral, like if he didn't have hope, you know, I, I am so glad you brought that up. And I forgot whose comment that was. But I mean, I think back to times when, you know, I would that I've done that, you know, I have absolutely not had hope that's that we were going to be successful with somebody. And I, I have framed it in like, you know what, I don't think this is the best fit. Maybe I don't think um, this is the right level of service or, oh yeah, they're just not engaging with us. Let's go ahead and close this case. And um, gosh, yeah, I am so glad you brought that up. So thank you. Cause I've certainly been guilty of doing that and thinking back, is it because I didn't have hope? Probably, probably. Mm-hmm. I wish I right. had the knowledge I had now, you know? <laughs> yeah, I can say the same, David. Um, I'm glad you, you shared that. For sure, there have been moments where I, you know, maybe through burnout or low resources and having to make some difficult decisions about enrollment uh, or staffing issues, you know, if, if you don't have that, like, kind of that ability to visualize that there's a potential to really turn the corner on the engagement piece or whatever, um, when you don't have that hope, when you can't sort of envision that, it's it's really hard and decisions like that do get made. Okay, so we've got some answers on next steps for Bob, and then yeah, let's move to the next section. So Megan, you think he should be consistent and show up for appointments to help build trust and show he's reliable? Mm -hmm. Yes. Hassan, remove her plan after discharge from hospital and ask her what she needs from Bob, support her in feeling in control of her own treatment. Right, so starting to reinforce that autonomy and control. Raquel is used to men demanding sex in return for, for protecting her. She will most likely have a lot of doubts about Bob. Building trust is the first thing to do with this client. Great point. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we really like to think about, and we, we took the slide up, but we did have like how important it is in that 
relationship building uh, time to focus on like hierarchy of needs and really eliciting from someone what it is that they need. Sometimes treatment isn't what anyone's thinking about. Raquel might just like need to address some more basic needs. Um, so sometimes we, you know, we're expected to provide treatment, but maybe case management is like, that should be the first while of the, of the work that you do together, doing sort of activities to the show. Like I, I'm going to concretely help you. Uh, and what, what are your priorities? What, what do we need to work on first? Um, that can be a wonderful engagement and trust building tool. Alrighty, so let's move to the next section. I'll read this one. So now we're in the empowerment stage. With many ups and downs, Raquel was engaged with the FSP team. She was closest to Bob though. Raquel would often ask Bob to have sex with her. Bob would politely decline and inform her that if they had a sexual relationship, they would move further away from the goal of achieving the ideal Raquel. During every meeting, Bob or Kathy, the only other FSP team member that Raquel would talk with, would discuss the ideal Raquel. Raquel continued to use meth, but when she uses, she thinks of the things that Kathy told her. Kathy and Raquel have, had discussed how meth most likely would not help bring the ideal Raquel closer to reality. Raquel still believed that she could work harder as a private investigator if she was high. Kathy did not tell Raquel she was wrong. That simply helped Raquel to process the pros and cons so Raquel could be the person to make the decision. This was a new concept for Raquel. She wasn't being told what to do or how to do it. She felt like Kathy trusted her. Kathy always reminded Raquel that she is the expert of herself. Raquel particularly appreciated when Kathy would say, you got this. Raquel even wrote it on the inside of her Bible. Raquel continued to refuse to see the psychiatrist on the team. She believed that the injectable medications would also include a device that can improve others' ability to track Raquel's every movement. Bob and Kathy have discussed with Raquel the pros and cons of taking medication with Raquel and they, they respected her decision to decline them. However, Bob and Kathy did notice that there may be some ambivalence around taking oral medication. During one of the FSP team meetings, Bob shared Raquel's most recent solicitation for sex. A colleague checked with Bob about how this makes him feel. He brushed off the question and simply stated, I would never bang a client, that's disgusting. The team shared a laugh and continued to discuss their cases. Right. Thanks. And, and while, uh, while you were reading, uh, Michael had a comment just as, in regards to next steps, you know, continuing to encourage her to be the woman she envisions and attempt to gain Raquel's trust in some form of hopes of getting Raquel to accept some positive instruction. And I, I really like that because, it, again, it goes back to how important the relationship is in order to begin trusting maybe some of the uh, some of the words that come out of the, the FSP professionals now, you know, <laughs> so again, just emphasize that. Um, but yeah, going back to these questions, uh, yeah, Megan, Megan, so disappointed in Bob right now. Yeah. I know we all are. I'm glad you picked that up. <laughs> Maybe we start with that issue. So uh, number three, what are the potential ramifications of Bob's comments to the team? What's going on there? You know, he's done some great work. He's been super person-centered and we have Bob, you know, doing this because we want to point out like humans are humans, we're imperfect. Um, you know, people can have amazing clinical skills, engagement skills, and then kind of mess it up, you know, do something that's, that doesn't feel terribly person-centered and, and raises some questions around values and ethics. Yeah. Um, so Bob's comments are stigmatizing. They're creating an image or a label of who Raquel is, right? Bob is not cool right now. No, <laughs> um, right. He's it's it's kind of objectifying. It's dehumanizing, right? Like 
she is a person, um, her interest in having sex is valid. Um, it's, it's not, she's not disgusting, right? It wouldn't be right to have sex with a client. Of course, everyone knows that, but to, you know, you, you see that there's some defensiveness coming up. And so he, he's choosing to, um, to minimize her humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think, you know, uh, to support Bob, like it, 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 it would be, it is difficult, you know, when, when those solicitations happen, um, obviously he's not handling them appropriately. Yeah, exactly. Karen, he does that, that that's the best recommendation. Like he needs to process this with his supervisor. Um, the whole point of supervision, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bob not address his feelings, right? He's personalizing it and reacting to it as if she was just a woman, not a client, right? So making it more about him instead of having that, that perspective of really thinking about her and what this means for her. Yeah, the word disgusting yeah. is dehumanizing. He sounds defensive. Uh, there's definitely something behind a strong reaction. He needs supervision. Um, right, he's feeling something. So we do, you know, react to these challenging moments that come up, but through supervision and through being grounded in um, all the things we've been talking about today, uh, that and, and Wednesday, this is how those situations could be navigated better. So let's talk about the moments of empowerment and what skills we see Kathy using, and then we can move on to the next section. Um, so Kathy's doing some talking with Raquel around her meth use, and you know she's pretty encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I like that they're, you know, I think because of that trust that they have been developing. It seems like Raquel is start. I mean, she's starting to have ambivalence as opposed to complete like no medication whatsoever. Like it seems like it that trust is actually starting to work. It hasn't paid off. I mean, she's still not taking medication, and that's that's okay. I shouldn't say it hasn't paid off because it, it has in many many ways, just not in that medication component. But it seems like there's possible movement there. It's really mm-hmm. really great. Um, yeah. It reminds me of the reality of how slow change is, um, yeah. you know, how we have to really look for the incremental little baby steps um, and celebrate all of those as successes and progress and proof um, yeah. that someone, you know, may, may change their mind. They may engage in a way uh, around their care that's going to produce greater well-being. Yeah. And I, I hope teams... Um, who who do this really difficult work? I hope they're able to celebrate these um, seemingly small victories, but they're actually huge. Like the victories of, wow, you know, the, this individual, uh, she didn't tell me to fuck off today. Instead, she actually said hi. Like, like that's huge. I know that doesn't get on a report that that represents an outcome, mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate. But it's that's such a huge victory. Um, there are many of those, I'm sure that. That sometimes it's easy to overlook. Yeah. I just want to acknowledge, Brenda, your comment. You had a client once in the same situation. You Mm -hmm. felt uncomfortable and had to process it in supervision. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, this is a common thing that comes up, but it it, it just is hard. Um, And Bob doesn't respond to it ideally. Um, It could impact the team negatively, but he's human too. And 
you know, there would have been a better way to address it, but it needs addressing because this is tough stuff. It's a lot to carry. It's a lot to process. Um, Definitely. Do you think it'd be worth going on to the next section? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So now we're going to focus on Raquel and the role of self-responsibility or the concept of self-responsibility. Raquel continued to think about the ideal Raquel. After working with the FSP team for four months, Raquel was starting to get suspicious of whether the ideal Raquel was really possible. She continued to live in fear that she was going to be murdered and that Richard was coming for her. Raquel was developing trust for Bob and Kathy, but they weren't doing anything for her. During her next visit with Kathy, she became very angry. Raquel told Kathy that the ideal Raquel is bullshit and that FSP does nothing for her. Raquel even changed Kathy's quote in her Bible from you got this to you got shit. Kathy listened to Raquel scream at her and talk about how people were trying to kill her. Even though it was difficult, Kathy did not question the fear that, she ex that Raquel experienced. She simply validated how terrifying it must be to be in Raquel's shoes. Raquel felt heard, but she was mad. She told Raquel, or I'm sorry, she told Kathy to go away and that she never wants to see her or Bob again. Kathy validated her decision and reminded Raquel that she is the expert of herself. However, Kathy did ask for permission to check in next week when she would be in the area to meet with another person involved with the FSP program. Raquel promptly told Kathy to go fuck herself. This upset Kathy, so Bob took her for a cup of coffee. While talking with Bob at Starbucks, Kathy told him that uh, she is going to back, going to check on Raquel every day, despite what she told Raquel. She was so concerned about Raquel that she was feeling so many emotions. However, Bob recommended that Kathy keep her word and not check in on Raquel until next week. Kathy reluctantly agreed. A week later, Kathy stopped by the tent that Raquel lived in. Raquel was not there, only her tattered Bible <clears throat> remained. Kathy asked a neighboring individual about her. According to Jessica, the neighbor, Raquel was taken to the hospital and she was found unconscious outside of her tent. Jessica thought that she might have had, uh, she might have smoked some bad meth and that uh, that has been making its way on the streets. After a diligent search of local hospitals, Kathy was able to locate Raquel. Kathy and Bob went to the hospital where Raquel was being held. She was admitted to the psychiatric unit after she was treated for exhaustion and what appeared to be evidence of assault. Raquel had no recollection of what happened, but she was actually happy to see Bob and Kathy when they arrived. Raquel had a belief that Richard had found her and poisoned the meth that she had purchased and smoked. Kathy brought up the ideal Raquel and what the next steps need to be to move closer to the ideal Raquel. Raquel, who had given up on hope uh, that the ideal Raquel was possible, was shocked to hear that Kathy and Bob both thought that it was still a possibility. Both Kathy and Bob appeared to be serious when meeting with her and it didn't seem like the ideal Raquel was a joke. In that moment, Raquel left uh, Raquel left that, oh, excuse me, I'm losing my place. Raquel felt that perhaps the meth wasn't helpful after all. Raquel was still afraid of Richard and the people who believed were coming after her, but the fear wasn't as painful as it had been. The hospital psychiatrist, Dr. Cook, shared that she has been receiving oral antipsychotic medications, but she needs an injection in order to minimally function. Dr. Cook met with the FSP team psychiatrist, Dr. Smith, prior to Raquel's discharge. Dr. Cook told Dr. Smith, you need to make her take this medication. However, much to Dr. Cook's dismay, 
Dr. Smith, along with Bob and Kathy, took a different approach with Raquel during her discharge. They presented a list of options that Raquel can choose from, including not taking medications at all. To everyone's surprise, Raquel chose to take an oral medication, not the full, not the full regimen, but a start. Raquel stated that since she is the expert of herself, she would like to start slow and see how she feels. She wants to be in control over what goes in her body. Okay. Um, so what, what do we think that Kathy is experiencing? What emotions when Raquel is yelling at her? And I think we can all sort of guess at that from personal experience. Frustration. Yeah, I can only imagine how difficult that is. I mean, I, I know we've all experienced it, but it doesn't make it easier sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's really tough. Anger and helplessness. Yeah. This person is hopeless or I suck at my job. Yeah, being self-critical. Yeah. Helplessness. Taking it personally, for sure. Yeah. It must make it even it must make it so much more difficult to carry hope for that individual when they're telling you that you're not helping them or, or being mm -hmm. offensive to you. Yeah. Um, how do we think the dignity of risk concept applies to Kathy's decision-making around visiting Raquel? Let um, me just answer that part of the question. So Kathy, uh, you know, she, she really wants to go visit her. She's like, oh, I know, no, I, I, I know she told me not to, but I'm really worried. And Bob kind of talks her down from that. Um, Bob is helpful again. Bob's, Bob's a good worker again. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what that is, do we see the dignity of, dignity of risk there at all? Is that, is that that concept playing out? Yeah, it, you know, it really is clear. Redemption for Bob, yeah. It, it, but it, it's such a good point. Like, we don't know if Kathy did the right thing or not. You know, like something did happen to Raquel. And would it have made a difference if Kathy did go to check on her every day? Who knows? But would that have also damaged the relationship? Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, again, we don't know. And it's, that has to be a really difficult position for, for Kathy to be in. Um, right. But yeah, is exactly. Is Kathy, yeah, Kathy, I, I feel that uh, at first she was like with that date, with those daily visits that she wanted to do. But again, yeah, uh, like Paul, you say you're not sure. I, mm -hmm. I don't know either. Right. Um, I, do you think it's okay to go to the next segment yeah. just for the purpose of time? And then we'll kind of wrap up. Sure. Yeah. This, th yeah, this whole scenario and the, the overprotect neglect continuum and all that just, we are just so imperfect. There's no, we are not computers. We are not fortune tellers. We, we don't know, you know, we, we do the best we can in every moment. Um, I want to address these comments. Do you think Raquel may have not had the trust of Kathy showed up in spite of what she told her? Right. Possible. And if Kath, if I were Kathy, I would feel guilty as if I could have done something right. And then we have to process those feelings where we can and, um, move forward. It's, this is, this is sort of the, the hardest part of the work that's really not evident to the folks who don't do it for yeah. sure. Okay. Let's talk about Raquel and Meaningful Role. We're going to get through this in just a few minutes, and then we'll have a wrap-up. So I'm going to read very quickly. Uh, the ideal Raquel still seemed to be a long way off. However, Raquel felt good about her decision to take oral medications. Three weeks after her hospitalization, Raquel had only used meth twice. She felt in control over her meth use because she purchased it from someone she trusted, 
great, and used it with her neighbor Jessica instead of by herself, also great. She told Kathy about this and Kathy stated, thank you for sharing that with me. And it sounds like you are being very thoughtful about your decisions. Can you teach me some skills in making more thoughtful decisions? For the first time, Raquel felt like she had some control in her life and it felt great. She decided that she would be her, uh, she would be her new role until she could move on to a different role. Her meaningful role in her life shifted to decision maker. Raquel, the decision maker, would continue to be in control of her own life. Raquel discovered that making decisions felt good and she felt like a responsible person when she made decisions that seemed to work out well for her. Some of the decisions that Raquel made were excellent and others weren't so great, but that's okay. They were Raquel's to make. Bob and Kathy were there to support her when making decisions, whatever they were. Most recently, Raquel mentioned getting her high school diploma to Kathy. Kathy was so excited to hear this request, but also embarrassed. Kathy thought, why didn't we suggest this to her sooner? Kathy explored this in supervision with Tamara. Kathy realized that although she supported ideal Raquel, the ideal Raquel notion, she did not truly expect progress to be made. That supervision session really helped Kathy to revisit her own perceptions of the people she serves. Okay, so what, let's talk about question two. I think we know what an example of a new meaningful role for Raquel might be. Uh, what are the potential missed opportunities here? Um, and, and, and relatedly, what, Apart from quality supportive supervision, what other strategies could Kathy benefit from or use to explore her client's potential meaningful roles or purposes? So we see Kathy having a, oh, I didn't think of that. Wow, why didn't I think of that uh, moment? You know, she's doing good work and then she has a bit of an oversight. Her lens was a little narrow. Yeah. It's kind of like she had one of those aha moments and I, whether it was implicit bias or not, it's, like she didn't realize, like Kathy, it seems like Kathy really thought that, no, I'm, I have hope, I know she can do this, and but there still might have been something there. I, mm -hmm. Right, it, so we have a couple, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Um, Paul, you say, I will say, super, super big win, Raquel adopting key phrase of person-centered work, she's the expert. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. She's uh, she's actualizing, um, you know, believing in herself. This, there's a lot of self-responsibility and empowerment and hope all playing out into her believing that she can take on a meaningful role. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the stuff with Kathy, like this is this is something. And again, like wow, we've been I've been guilty of this for sure of just thinking a little narrowly, narrowly or limitedly. If that's a word about what potentials exist for someone I've been working with and thinking that, oh, great, we, we you know, we uh, opened up one opportunity and that they're engaging with that, but not necessarily asking questions to elicit, could there be more? Yeah, and, you know, I really like how, um, how her new role, like, it's not the role that we would really expect. You know, you, typically when we talk about roles, it's like, I'm a social worker, I'm a partner, I'm a parent, whatever. And for like, they were able to be creative. Like they, like, oh, her new role is going to be decision maker. So this was again, like so personal, person-centered, mm. so recovery oriented that um, I, I think that's a really great demonstration of how Kathy and Bob were able to kind of reframe that and like yeah this is yeah. your new role then like let's go with it right yeah it's amazing to to really put words to the things we might overlook because they just are a thing that we do uh you know to to navigate life but 
giving that giving that credibility and language uh, that's so powerful. Yeah. All right, we've got two minutes left, so I think we want to wrap up. Uh, sorry, we've had to rush through the end of this just a little bit, but you have this vignette and these questions in your PDFs and you are welcome to use them with your teams. If you are a supervisor or if you want to throw it out there as a team member, something to discuss, all of these materials. There's a few tools at the end of the packet too. Dave mentioned um, some of them, the, the HOPE inventory, we've got a strengths assessment, and we also have those SAMHSA uh, supported decision-making conversation starters. Will the packet be emailed to you? I believe it was already, if I'm not mistaken, or was it downloadable? I think Sasha usually emails it, but then it's also on the website. Um, and it is up on the website currently. So um, uh, let's see, there it is. Uh, so pmhp.ucla.edu slash media. Um, that'll get you to uh, where the trainings are and then the packet is there. And also once, uh, once we're finished today, uh, Joe Mango does wonderful work with editing videos. He's going to uh, kind of refine this a bit and then post it online so um, other people can watch it whenever they would like. Um, I certainly want to say thank you for doing the great work that you do. You know, even going through the scenario just reminds me of how tough your jobs are. So um, I certainly appreciate it. So thank you for that. Yeah, I echo the same sentiment. Thank you so much. The participation has been wonderful. It's great to get to connect with you also, share thoughts and ideas and laugh a little bit too. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing and we're wishing you oh, lots of inner peace and wellness and patience as we move through this challenging time. Mm -hmm.